Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. The attack on all your senses from minute one. It was incredible. Don't just hand over this life. Educate yourself. I would welcome anything that would help to protect the children further. The same spiel we get from them. Very little respect. Can we just talk? Call 0818 969696. 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96. You get in touch, text or WhatsApp, 0833969696, and we'll pick a qualifier to go forward to see him, not once, but twice. That's happening. I'll tell you later what hour I'm going to do with him, but it'll be either 9, 10, or it'll be either now or the next hour, or the hour after. Yes, I am teasing you, but I will play it later this morning. 0818969696, trust you had a, a good weekend. That all went well for you. The weather was unpredictable, but sure, that's is what it is. Thinking this morning about, do you remember we were here talking? It was late March, and we were talking to Councillor Ted Tynan about scrambler bikes and the dangers of scrambler bikes and the unregulated use of scrambler bikes around the place. And you remember I said to Ted at the time, I hope we won't be here. One morning soon, talking about a child or an elderly person or somebody uh, seriously injured or worse by a scrambler bike. Um, And we were sincerely hoping that that wouldn't be the case. Well, thinking about a little girl called Holly Lewis, she's three years of age. Now, this happened in Talla in Dublin on Friday, but it could just as easy happen here in Cork anytime a scrambler bike ran over her in, in a hit and run incident and she's lucky to be alive she got away with reasonably serious but recoverable injuries but it's only a matter of time you know it really is only a matter of time but our thoughts with Holly and her family this morning let us hope that that prediction that myself and Ted Tiny were making never comes true 0818 96 96 96. Now, you might have seen some 
uh, articles of the newspaper and some social media activity about a FUSS march. F-U-S-S, a FUSS march. It is coming up in May, the 6th of May, here in Cork. And it's parents getting together to say, we've had enough. We've just simply had enough. It's Families Unite for Services and Support. Rebecca O'Reardon, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Delighted. And that's effectively what it is. We've had enough. That's it. Um, I suppose we've had crisis after crisis in the last couple of years. And during all those crises, um, uh, certain cohorts of society have who were quite neglected before the pandemic have just fallen away to nothing. And they're, you know, they just need to be made a priority. Um, this, is, this isn't something that can wait 12 months for action. This, uh, this is obviously going to take decades to fix. This is a broken system from start to finish. Um, it, is, it is broken and, you know, they were trying to fix it. Uh, they were trying to fix it with the rollout of this new system of progressing disabilities. But, um, you know, as many people predicted, it has been an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. When that was touted first, the progressing disabilities, where they all come under the one umbrella, those who are promoting it told us it means everyone will get dealt with in turn and all the services will come through one umbrella and everything will be great and all tickety-boo. The reality is far different. The reality is things have gotten worse. Yeah, I suppose... Um, previously, you might wait um, a couple of years, which is obviously unacceptable for an assessment. Then once you had an assessment, you'd get an actual diagnosis. Um, they did a kind of a two-pronged uh, turn on it in that uh, they were, they, you know, they, it's now been proven to be unlawful. But basically, they weren't, even when you did get to the top of the list for an assessment, you didn't get an assessment, you got a screening, which meant that somebody came and saw your child for 90 minutes and they'd say, okay, this child meets the terms of the Disability Act, but they don't meet the terms of the Disability Act. And then the families would go away and wait for them for the services that didn't exist because, you know, they, that, 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 didn't, that didn't exist before, so I'm not sure why they thought they were going to exist now. Yeah. But things were even worse because now a family had a diagnosis of disability or not disability. But sure, what does that, I mean... Having a diagnosis of dis- of undefined disability helps nobody because you can't even Google that. Yeah, yeah. And you see, once until such time as you have an actual diagnosis of an actual disability, people will look at you and say, "Well, I don't know what you want because you've no definite." You've no, and it's it all works. It all works once you get a defined diagnosis. You have to get something. So the longer you can keep, be kept waiting for a diagnosis, then then the longer you have to wait. The, the difficulty is that under the progressing disability model, <clears throat> those children who got, a, you know, a kind of a, a catch-all diagnosis, they still had to be given services. So, for example, um, you know, there was children going for speech and language or occupational therapy. And those children, even the children who did, now obviously there wasn't a whole lot of them, but even the children who did actually get um, services, those therapists were going in to work with them. They had absolutely no idea what their needs were. They were giving them a one-size-fits-all because sure, what else could they do? If somebody comes in to work with you, speech and language, you have no real background uh, information on them other than they have a disability. 
I mean, that could be a physical disability, that could be an intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. It has a very big impact on how you work with that child. And by the time you've figured out in your own head what it is, sure, a year has passed of, of you giving this child completely pointless and inappropriate intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So parents are coming together on the 6th of May to March. Yes. Um, and this is, I suppose, this is for all parents of children and young adults um, who need support. So I suppose uh, this isn't for one particular um, disability. You know, if, if you went to your child's school when they were 10 years old and you said, oh, I'm concerned that my child might have dyslexia, come to this march, you are welcome. If you are on the phone every day fighting for respite for your, you know, um, for your child, come to this march. If you have a 20-year-old and you know, you're sick sick of it, come to this march. Everyone is welcome. Um we could use all the support we can get. This this area is a you know, it's um people who who need to get onto the street don't they're often the people who can't. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We're we're having this march and we know for a fact that you know, most of the people who we are reaching out to just they just cannot go. They don't have the energy, they don't have the spoons left. People start, you know, the, the cup was full to pour from a very, very long time ago. Yeah. Um, but I suppose we, we're just, we're trying to organise this basically because we've tried court. We've tried formal complaints. Yeah. We've tried calling politicians every week for years. Things are in crisis point and we want, we want a commitment in the next 12 months um, but there are certain things that they can do. Obviously, this is going to take a long time to fix, but we want immediate outsourcing of assessments to clear the backlog of the assessment of need. They spent two years on this unlawful, and they I mean, it was very clearly unlawful, um, nonsense thing with the assessment of need. They can meet, there's private places popping up left, right and centre. There would be absolutely no difficulty in outsourcing those assessments. Um we had the meeting with Anne Rabbit there recently where she came yeah. to Vienna Woods. Yeah. She had absolutely no idea what was going on. Uh, she thought 14.5 therapists had been removed from special schools in the Cork area and that 5.5 had been returned when in fact the principals of the schools told us that it was 60 therapists had been removed and not one. Now all of the children in those special schools, they would have come off lists because their therapists would have been in the schools. Yeah. So now those children who, who are in special schools and are going to need that extra support have absolutely nothing and they need those therapists returned immediately. Do you know, Rebecca, what um, comes to mind though? And the best of luck, I hope there are thousands of people at the march because this is an ongoing issue. I think so many people now, Rebecca, are just bit down. Just completely bent down. And they'll be saying, sure, why would I bother? Nobody cares. That's the problem. That's totally, totally fair. And I mean, sure, we all, I think, I don't think that the anyone who left Vienna Woods that night doesn't feel that way. Yeah. But if we don't have a tiny shred or glimmer of hope at this stage, yes. what do we have? Yeah. We have nothing. Yeah. We, and even, that's the thing. If you stay at home and you feel like there's no point trying anymore, I'm not gonna. Th- I'm not gonna think. I'm gonna be like, 
you know, I understand. I can totally see why you would feel that way. Well, I don't know but if you, I want the, the, something that does give it. I brought, I brought that up. Sorry, the line isn't the best. I brought that up for a particular Thanks. reason because for someone who is thinking like that, listening to us talk this morning, I won't go into the details. It's on her Facebook page if anybody wants to, to look for it. But Nicole Duggan, um, Riley's mom, had a major win, a huge win over the last few weeks uh, just because it, she, she wasn't letting go. She wasn't giving up. And they had a huge win for little Riley and she put, up, put it up on her Facebook over the last few days. So you do, the wins That's are it, out I mean, there. The wins are out there. And I mean, even with the, even with the court, I mean... That's the thing. I mean, those families, uh, we were one of the families who sued um, on in relation to the assessment of need procedure because it was clearly unlawful. And, you know, we are very happy that things are going to change. But and, and those there is small things that we can do which can affect change. There absolutely is. But at the same time, we're very, you know, it's very going through the court is very inaccessible to the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality. And the other reality is that now we've won our case, all the families who won their cases in relation to the assessment of need, our children will get assessments. But what about all the other children? What about the 10,000 that got the the substandard version of that? Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. It's, so it's, 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 a, it's difficult times. It's very difficult times. Two weeks Friday is the march and you'll be gathering yes. on Grand Parade at 10 o'clock. Yes. Yes, and we're we'll be asking for uh, the immediate inf- uh, the immediate implementation of the parent forums, which were outlined in the 2011 um, plans for progressing disabilities, because those have not been implemented, and they would make a genuine, urgent difference. An addressing of the issue for per- of personal budgets for respite, and a commitment to end families paying for their own equipment that should be covered under a medical card. We have families of terminal children paying 25,000 euros a year in equipment for children who we should be caring for as a nation. We should be, those children shouldn't be, you know, becoming, be sitting in wheelchairs that don't fit. Yes. You know, we shouldn't, it's, 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 we've all heard the stories. We, we don't even need to, we don't, we, like, they're so horrific. We we're all desensitized to them at this point. So all we want is every man, woman and child out on that street Share it with people. Tell people about it. We have a PDF of the posters. Let's just let's just show them that we are still standing, and we're going to continue okay. to stand as long as we need to. All right. Listen. Good to speak with you, Rebecca, and I wish you well. When it comes up, it's Friday, two weeks. It's the Fuss March, ten a.m. Friday, sixth May, and the Grand Parade. If you're just sick of it all, uh, and you support, or you know, or you care about someone who's in this position. Fuss March, making a fuss. Uh, 6th of March, or 6th of May rather, 6th of May, 10 a.m. on the Grand Parade. 0818 96 96 96. There's a picture going around of an overturned car on Blarney Street. It's a fairly shocking photograph. Um, Kira Rogers, good morning. You, 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 you came across this. Um, actually, yeah. Hi. Good oh, yeah. morning. How are you? Um, I was coming out of my house on Blarney Street, about twenty to thirty feet away, and I saw it happen. Yeah, it was absolutely frightening. Oh, you saw, describe describe what happened. Um, so, as well, the car was just coming down towards the city, 
end of Blarney Street and it looked like he nicked off one of the parked cars and he just flipped. Now, he wasn't really speeding or anything like that, but the car just absolutely flipped onto the footpath. Like if I'd have left my house a couple of seconds earlier, I'd have been crushed and there was a few more people walking. Just thank God there was nobody on the footpath on that side, you know, when it happened. Because, yeah, the picture that I see has the thing, and that's near your house. Near my house, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you'd have been coming out to go about your yeah. day. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was about seven thirty in the evening, so I was just heading back into my studio. Yeah, it was just unreal. Yeah. Wow. Um, and there was kids playing, like just you know, not far up either. It was just by City View Wheels, you know. Just, yes. And just just above City View Wheels, there's like you know a little yard, and the kids were playing in there, so they were pretty shocked as well. Like I think they kind of enjoyed the drama. To be honest, they were in boys, but like. It was, um, nobody was hurt, thank God, and the driver walked out, yeah. you know, and all that, so. And, oh, well, that's that's good. Is that a yeah. dangerous area? I know the part of town, but I'm not up there very frequently. Is it a uh, dangerous area? Like, it needs to be one way, really. We've been, myself and my fiancé have been emailing counsellors, you know, since we moved up here about a year ago, because it does really need to be one way. There's always jams, there's always, you know, people getting stuck, and yeah. like... Because it's a really narrow road, like, it's a really narrow road. It's really narrow, and I think, like, what happened this time was, like, he was turning his tyre inwards, maybe to pull in for someone, but he caught his car on, you know, on a tyre that was parked and managed to flip the car. I've never seen anything like it, though. The way it flipped, it was unbelievable. (laughs) I don't even know how it was possible. We don't, I mean, look, we don't know what happened, and it'll be investigated and all that, and no no doubt it was a complete and total accident, but it must have been fairly frightening for anybody. I mean, you actually saw it, like, good Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it was unbelievable. I just, yeah, it would be great if they... If they made it one way, though. <laughs> well, any, anyone who doesn't see the cause for it being one way should probably be shown that photograph right now. I think so. Do you I know, it's so. it's a scary yeah. one. I, I saw it this morning. Wow, look at that. Yeah, yeah, um, right on the footpath as well. You know, right. yeah. Okay, all right. Listen, I'm, yeah. we know that you've got uh, your artwork is up on com, so people can see your work. Oh, yeah. Thanks a million for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bother. Not a bother. That's Kira. So sh- that... that car up Blarney Street last evening we don't know what happened, it'll emerge in time as all these things do but she had a very, literally a very lucky escape 10 seconds later things might have been an awful lot different 0818 96 96 96 Kevin says I'm really sorry but like a lot of issues this the first march until it becomes a voting issue then nothing meaningful will change I really really wish it wasn't the case, Kevin do you know you're not wrong, many years ago many many years ago Somebody said to me, those kids will never vote. They'll never have families, most of them, that will vote. Their parents are too run ragged to vote. And guess what? The people who depend on votes know this. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Cork's 96FM loves Ed Sheeran and you do too. So we want to send you and a friend to see him twice. Twice. Parky Queeve Cork on April 29th. Then once again in the city of love. Paris. Paris. 
accommodation, spending money, and tickets to see Ed twice. Live in concert. Listen to Cork's 96FM for Ed Sheeran songs between 7am and 7pm weekdays. Weekdays. Then text WhatsApp in for your chance to win. Experience Ed Sheeran twice in Cork and Paris. With Blackpool Shopping District. No gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. Two massive stadium shows. Thanks to one radio station. Cork's 96 FM. There were some crime figures released to the Echo recently by the guard, the press office. I'll talk about them in just a sec. Why don't you to tell me this morning, do you feel safe in Cork City Centre? Day or night? Day or night? 0818 96 96 96 because the crime figures are very worrying. But first to Cove. Mick, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. What happened, Mick? What did you tell me about something? Uh, we go down to Cove pretty often in our camper van, mm. and we're down on the Friday night. And we came, got up the next morning, went for breakfast, went in as far as Cork, and had a watch a few matches and done a bit of shopping, the usual. And got the train back out then about half ten. And as we got into Cove into our camper there was a caravan at either side of us, you know. So, thought not now, because I him the van, had a glass of wine. And next thing, there was a rumpus. It was like mayhem. There was kids crying. There was kids shouting and screaming. They were fighting. It was just unbelievable. Now, this was down by the by the waterfront, and you were there in by your the motorhome. In your motorhome, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was probably thirty motorhomes in in there that night, and I'm sure they heard the very same as I did. And did the guards but, come, or did anybody come and sort it out, or try to sort it out? Yeah, no, the guards came down. The guards came down, but they hid every time the the guards arrived down, they, they disappeared, mm-hmm. and it was all quiet. And the minute the guards drove off, it all started up again. And for what time of the night was this? It was probably. Half eleven, twelve o'clock. Right, right. And you'd be a regular visitor to Cove, like in the in the old motorhome. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we love it down there. Never had any problems before down there, but absolutely gorgeous place. The yeah. Cove people welcoming us in. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's, a popular, it's a popular place for motorhomes, you know. They, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know it's it's a nice spot, you know. Right. But I'd be, I'd be very worried now going down. We would have left that night, honey. We had a few drinks in this, and um, you couldn't dream. Yeah. But the next morning, a lot of campers left. Right. So you, we, you would have we, actually left over the ruckus, but you had a couple oh, of drinks yeah, taken, so you decided to. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, it was very frightening. We were right beside the caravan, and all you could see is our own band being broke up. Right. Like, you know, they, were, they were fighting inside in the caravan. It was... And young children running around in pajamas, just crying. Oh, it was, and then they, they were sleeping in the cars. There was cars of them there as well, and they were sleeping in the cars. Right. Oh, it was unbelievable. Right. And the guards did yeah, come, no, but did they, they did, did no, in fairness, the they didn't arrest anybody. Down. No, no. No, they didn't arrest anyone because they dis- They could see the guards coming down, so they they just hid. You know, and when the guards got down, they could see nothing. Yeah. You know, now in fairness to the guards, now they did come down and they 
yeah, and they came down twice or three times. But they could see nothing. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And these motorhome parks, I, I don't know a whole pile about them, but they're a, they're a yeah. new idea in this country. Yeah, yeah. Is it airs, yeah, they're they call they're them. big in France. Yeah, airs, yeah. They're big in France now, but uh, they're starting up in Ireland now, and they're very good, very good. Yeah, but of course you need to be careful of, of who's staying well, and antisocial behaviour. Well, that's, well, that's it. And, the, like, the amount of rubbish around the next morning uh, was just everywhere. And in fairness to the campers, they'd be spotless. They'd bring the rubbish home. There'd never be noise. And I'm not saying that because I have a camper van. It's, it is the case. You ask yeah. anybody in the campers and the place would be spotless after. Yeah, yeah. Because I've had, you know, I, I've, I've talked to people before about the attractiveness of Ireland as, as a place to, to use a motor home. I've never, never tried it myself, but, but, yeah, yeah. The, the, you see, and you do see these parks on the continent, but yeah. like that now, everyone seems to take their own rubbish away, look after their own waste water, and be responsible yeah. citizens. But yeah, yeah, yeah. your 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 neighbours didn't this, do that. This, no, our neighbours weren't. No, no, it was terrible. It was, you know, I, it was. I just never experienced anything like it. You know. And mm. and COVID, and like we would have stayed in cold till Monday, mm. and a lot of other camper vans would have stayed the same, would have stayed there, you know. And but like we got out of it because you didn't know where they going. Was it going to come in numbers or or what? You know. You didn't want to. You didn't want to to risk it for the second night. Um. No, certainly not. And if you could, if you could confront these people, we'd be. It could be attacked. Yeah, we're afraid of that too, yeah. Someone needs to watch the antisocial behaviour in these great great ideas. Miss, missing out, it's kind of typical Ireland really, missing out on a great European holiday tradition. Oh, yeah. No, because we can't control the antisocial behaviour. Thank you very much, Mick. And you'll be back in co, I hope. Um, we'll certainly give it another try, but... I had to sleep with the herd beside me in the bed. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's not a nice experience, you know? No, it's not. Thanks, Mick. 0818 96 96 96. And air, they're a new thing to Ireland. They've been all over the UK and they've been all over France and Spain for years. I've seen loads of them, but they're like a little place to park up your motorhomes. And most people are very responsible and take this stuff away, but. And they don't start fighting, these are. This obviously happened. Friday night, thank you for that. I mentioned about, about safety in the city. These figures that came into, Donald O'Keefe was writing in the Echo um, over the weekend that the Yard, the press office, released figures to the Echo that since the start of the year in Cork City, there had been 628 arrests for public order offences. Now, that's not 628 people because some people could be arrested more than once. But 628 arrests for public order offences in the city since the start of the year. A few comments in that article. Independent Councillor Ken O'Flynn said the figures were staggering and that it was giving the city an unfavourable reputation. He was particularly outspoken about drugs. He said he's very concerned about drugs being visibly available and people going around strung out at all hours of the day and night and raised the topic of 
injection centres. Des Cahill of Fine Gael said he believed Cork City had a public order issue, but that the guards were doing their best to make it safer. He said he didn't want to be talking down the city, and the guards are doing their best. But there's only it's the only deterrent the guards have, and there's more. There's more trouble out there that the guards can handle. I get that impression anyway. Dan Boyle of the Greens was saying he felt the guards doing a good job. The community guard, they particularly excellent. Community policing's a good model. But 628 arrests for public order offences in Cork City since the start of the year. Now, the article doesn't break down what those public order offences were. But I guess it's a case of whatever you have in yourself. Today is a public order offence. There's a list of them. 628 of them. So would you think that Cork City is safe? A lot of reports over the weekend that it was quite quiet for the Easter. That there wasn't a whole lot going on in the city over the weekend. I wasn't in the city at all at the weekend. But but a lot of people saying the city was very quiet. And when you talk to people now, they say, I won't go into the city. I'd be half afraid to go into the city now because you wouldn't know what will happen. And you might be accused, and listen to me, I'll, straight away I know I'll be accused of talking down the city when I start talking about this, which is absolute nonsense if you know me. But, accuse me all you want, but this is here in front of you in the echo from the guard, the press office. 628 arrests for public order offences in Cork City since the start of the year. Now this is only the 19th of April. So 628 arrests between the 1st of January and the 19th of April. That's a lot of arrests. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. The Two Grand Minute. Listen to play at 7.40 and 8.40 every day. Answer 10 questions to claim all that cash. Stacking up the cash. Cash! Cash! The Two Grand Minute. On Casey and Ross in the morning. Courts 96 FM. Yeah, if you think the city is safe, let me know. If you think it's not safe... Same again, 0818 96 96 96. Like, would you, if you're going out at the weekend, would you consider your options now? Instead of, yeah, let's go off into town. Would you consider your options, particularly at the weekends? 0818 96 96 96. The Irish Medical Organization is balloting its non-consultant hospital doctors, its NCHDs, what we used to call junior doctors. They're balloting them for industrial action, uh, Demoralised, frustrated and angry, they say, over working conditions, hours being worked and breaches of their contract. It said, they did a survey and they said over 96% of non-consultant hospital doctors have been required to work over 48 hours a week, many on multiple occasions. Uh, Dr. Aidan Coffey is a member of the National uh, Committee of the NCHDs with the IMO. Aidan, good morning. Morning, PJ. How are you? The IMOs, am I right? Right. So that'd be house officers, senior house, reg, and senior reg. Yes, exactly. Right. And in, interns as well. And interns, of course. Yeah, those those grades. That's most of the doctors in the hospital. 
pretty much yeah, anyone working in a hospital who isn't a consultant. Yeah. So from yeah people right out of college to people who could have had 15 or 20 years or more experience as well. Now everyone knows and has always known that when you come out of college as, as a new doctor, you are worked into the ground for a year. It's not right, it shouldn't happen, but that's, that's how it is. The perception then would be, well, it calms down a bit after that then, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't really. You're, um, yeah, you have your intern year, which isn't an, it's not really an initiation year. It's just, it's start as you mean to go on. Um, and you're subjected to the routine contract breaches, which we have been for years now. And we're now kind of saying enough is enough. Mm. Yeah, two books that I read in the last 12 months, one by Chris Luke uh, and the other by Adam Kay, a uh, British doctor. This is not new. This has gone on since doctors were working in hospitals. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. What is changing is that we have uh, an increasingly ageing population. Uh, we have more people living longer with more complex medical conditions. Uh, and that means that the strain on healthcare systems is growing more and more and more. Um, so that's certainly more complex than it was uh, 50 years ago and probably more so than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. So what does the average, say, senior house officer, what does their average contract say as opposed to what they actually have to do? So under European law, we shouldn't be working any more than 48 hours a week. Yes. Uh, we should be paid for the hours we're worked. Uh, sometimes, as you know, things inside in a hospital or in healthcare are unpredictable. You need to work longer. Uh, you might need to come in early in the morning to see patients that have come in overnight. You might need to stay late to look after patients who become sick at the end of the day. Um, and that's, that's accepted by NCHGs. We don't have a problem with that. What we do have a problem with is not getting paid for those hours. Um, the NCHGs are entitled to uh, annual leave. Uh, we're also entitled to study leave. Um, and we're entitled to get our rosters in a somewhat timely fashion. So that's meant to be more than two weeks before we start our job. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, those things that are stated in our contract are often not enforced. And this is happening every day of every week all over the country. Mm. And this, like we said, is not new. There's simply not enough of you, seems to be the answer. There's just simply not enough of you for the work you're required to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I think, the seven and a half thousand uh, NCHDs. Um, we've about two thirds of them on training programs. So we need more people on training programs. Um, there needs to be more training places available. And there needs to be a dedicated, um, I suppose, evaluation of workforce planning. Uh, it's all just far too haphazard at the moment. And granted, there have been increases in tra- training places uh, in various specialties over the years. But it's not enough. We, we know, as I said, the population are getting older. Uh, care needs are growing more and more complex. Um, so there isn't a proper strategy in place. It's just continually fighting fires from one place to the other. Am I right in thinking there is a thing called the European Working Hours Directive? And yes, even, even then you're derogated from that. Yeah, so as I said, we, we shouldn't be working any more than 48 hours in a week. The HSE figures will conveniently say that there is 100% compliance throughout the country. But when we surveyed our own members, uh, 100% of people said they're working beyond their contracted hours. So what, what is the plan? There's a ballot 
for industrial action. I mean, the last thing anybody wants to hear listening to the radio on a Tuesday morning at quarter to ten is the, the doctors are going to go on strike. Is that going to happen, Aidan? It might. We, we, we don't want to. Nobody wants to. Um, but I think what we need is meaningful engagement with the HSE. We want our contract to be respected. It's very, it's, our claims aren't radical. We're not asking for anything more or anything less. Mm. We just want what's written down on paper to be respected. Um, if that is, if the HSE say, look, yeah, you're right, fair point. Um, we're going to sort that out with the hospitals. Then we won't be going on strike. If the HSE engage in, I suppose, their kind of usual behaviour of stalling and making no progress, then there's a very good chance we will be going on strike. So we'll be recommending to the members that we um, vote yes for industrial action and we'll hope that it doesn't come to strike. Mm. Um, but that's, it's a very real possibility. And just to clarify that, that this is just under industrial relations rules. So you can do nothing without taking a ballot. So you now take a ballot. It, that still doesn't mean you do anything. It means you've... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It means that we, we, we go to our members and we say the National Committee has said we've had enough of this nonsense uh, and we need to take action. Um, what do you think, basically? Mm. And I think they're all going to say, you know, in huge numbers, yes, we do need to take action. Uh, and then we see what the HSE says. Mm. Like, you'd accept, I'm sure, Aidan, that there's not enough of you, correct? Yes, right. yes. So yeah. you can't yeah. fix that problem overnight? No, no, you can't. What I, th- I think the... As I said, it's all just a bit haphazard and inside and hospitals um so you know there are probably ways of restructuring mm. rosters uh, and all that and as i said starting by paying for the hours worked for the people you do have employed uh, seems to me like a very fair and obvious yeah, place because there is overtime i read an article at the weekend and i know these articles always arrive in the paper uh, just around the time that doctors are starting to agitate or any group is starting to agitate a bit <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, stories about people earning a hundred grand in, in overtime what is the story with uh, NCHDs and overtime you do get it don't you you do yeah so um, we're paid on average for a 39 hour working week like a lot of other people and then for the hours you work over that you're entitled to overtime um, so fairly simple concept. So but, if you work um, 60 hours, do you get paid for all those hours? Um, not routinely, by any manner of means. Uh, the, but you're, if you're entitled to overtime? Uh, you're entitled to overtime. Exactly. It sounds very simple when you say it like that, and I would agree with you completely. Right. But unfortunately, it doesn't work out like that. It's calculated over kind of an, uh, a four-week time period. You're paid probably two months after you've worked it. Ah. The, it arrives into your pay slip in a very opaque manner. Um, you know, it's very it's very hard to interpret. So, it in is, other words, uh, again, I'm trying to keep it simple. Challenge. You, you, you oh, work, yeah. you work, say, you work 40, 45, 50, 55 hours a week. You get your salary for your 39 and you might get the overtime down the road. Is that right? Exactly. That's it, exactly. You might. So you're you, trying to, you might, yeah. You might get, I mean, to be fair, most people are getting some overtime at least. I wouldn't, I wouldn't allege that we're not getting any. But I think if you're, you could be working 60 hours a week for four weeks and you might get paid for 50 or there'll be, you know, slices taken off. The mornings you'd come in early. They might say, oh, no, we don't pay anything. We don't, like, I've heard in one hospital people being told we don't pay overtime before eight o'clock. And you have doctors being told to start work at seven o'clock. 
Yeah. Which is just completely wrong, like, you know? Yeah, I know, I know. So the ballot will be held, and when will you announce that result? Um, probably in the next four weeks or so. So we'll be balloting our members over the, over the next okay. couple of weeks. And then that puts it on the table to the HSC and say, right, we've balloted, we've balloted for industrial action, now it's over to you. Exactly, but exactly. Just to reassure listeners, no, no doctor is going on strike this weekend or next weekend. No, 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 no. We're still fully staffed at the moment. And even in the event of a strike action, there would still be a safe level of care uh, in the hospitals, okay. you know. And we would come. We you know we'd make sure that there are safe staffing levels. You know that's all. That's always a priority. But the situation at the moment is unsafe. It's unsafe for patients, and it's unsafe for doctors, and unsafe for all of the other healthcare staff. So we need to do something. Yeah. And look, it's been the situation for many, many, many a long day. And this is just the latest group of non-consultant hospital doctors who are saying we can't put up with this anymore. And you can't. You could not possibly. Are you? had a friend who, who did medicine. It's a long time ago now, but I never forget the hours that, that he had to work in his first year, first couple of years. The hours are crazy, absolutely crazy. 0818 96 96 96. Now, I want to go, I, I won't do the, the, the song there, guys. I'll go straight uh, to the minister. It's connected stroke not connected, but all Irish workers are to be entitled to sick pay now for the first time under new law. You might not know it. We've been lucky. We work in a company that is pretty decent to us with regard to sick pay, and I'm sure lots of other people do too. But for thousands and thousands of Irish workers, there is no sick pay. You don't work, you don't get paid. You might have to go on a social, and and there's no sick pay for a lot of people. Well, now... People are going to have a right to sick pay. Uh, Leah Baradkar has received government approval for a new law that will give all workers the right to paid sick leave. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that it's taken until 2022 to put that in place. Uh, from this year, you'll have three days. From next, from 2024, five days. 2025, and then from 2026, everybody will have an entitlement to 10 days of sick leave. The Minister of State at the Department of Business, Employment and Retail is Damien English, and he joins me now. Minister, good morning. Good morning, PJ, and, and thanks for the introduction. And look, I think, first of all, you're right in how you've introduced it. There's many employees that are lucky enough to have sick pay, but there's many others who don't. And that's what we're trying to put right with this legislation. The Taunister was very clear on this. Uh, when he took up the briefing about event enterprise, it's something he wanted to change in conjunction and working with employers that we would introduce a statutory sick pay scheme, that everybody, no matter who you are or what career, what job you're in, would be able to, based on the certification, would be entitled to sick leave. Um, and that's important that we that we that we're in that space. We the legislation will be complete this year and this scheme should be enacted uh, certainly now over the summer by the autumn. Why did it take four years to do it though? Four years are taking a lot longer than that in my view because there's many countries all over Europe that have had a scheme at this in place already. Uh, the tolerance as I said when he took up this brief was determined that he would do it and he would make sure that on behalf of the, the employees in this country he would bring it through. So since that, over the last probably 16, 17 months, we've had, a, had an engagement and consultation with all the various stakeholders, which is right to do that because we wanted to do this in conjunction with employers, mindful of the situation for the last two years. has been very difficult for business owners and for employers, so it's important to get this right. Mm. And that's why it's been phased in. We would have consulta- have a, a strong consultation around the rate of pay, the duration, the conditions, the cost of businesses, the complexity of the regulatory environment, 
the need to have a certification, all that was something that had to be teased out with all departments. But I'm glad that we're through all that now and this mm. bill has started in the doll and we'll be up and running in the years ahead. I think it's a right. We are, there's only two or three countries in Europe that don't have a statutory state pay scheme, so that'll be corrected now, uh, and rightly so. Yeah, because I suppose if you have a sick pay scheme in work, you, you don't understand the complexities of it. You just apply and the money is paid and everything, every, everyone's happy. But if you don't have, you have people, how much of a, a role did the pandemic play in this minister? In that people might have mild symptoms or none at all. And they went to work because they wouldn't get paid if they didn't. And, and that's exactly it. I think that the pandemic made it very clear that there is a risk if someone goes to work uh, by, uh, if they're ill and certainly if they had something like like COVID as well. So we believe strongly that no one should feel that they have to go to work when they're sick because they can't afford not to. That was recognised very early on in response to COVID-19 and one of the first supports that came in was the, the Enhanced Illness Benefit Scheme at a greater rate to encourage people who, who not to go to work when they were sick because they were, you know, we needed to stop the spread of the virus. And I think it's well recognised that if anybody is genuinely sick, it's not helpful to your colleagues at work, to your customers, to your employers, and mm. public health in general by going to work. It's not so good for your own health sick. either, Minister, because if, you, if you're if you sick, you're sick. You need to take a few days off, go to the bed, or just sit around at home and be nice to yourself. If you've got a boss who doesn't pay sick leave and you're depend- dependent on a paycheck, you'll go in, which, even if you're not infectious to anybody else, you're not doing your own health any favours. Correct. It's not good. That's what I said. It's not good for anybody. Uh, and it's important that, 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 we, that we assist people not to be able to, be, not to have to do that. And it's important, as you say, everybody has bills to pay and need their money that week. So that's why this scheme w- w- kicks in for the first three days, which brings you right up to where the illness benefit is paid after day three. And over the next couple of years, then it moves on to five days, to seven days and to 10 days. And uh, while I do recognise it is an absolute great support to employees, it will put in, increase in pressure on employers. We'll work with them on those costs. But to recognise that the majority of businesses I talk to tell me they find it very difficult to source talent and, and to replace, you know, to fill jobs they have on offer. So we believe strongly as part of benefits rate and employment, if we can all work together to improve the paying conditions and the supports across the system, that will help and will strengthen the hand of business to be able to source talent and to retain the skilled workforce they have. Because we have a huge recruitment crisis in many sectors of society and... I don't know whether it's an accident or not, but a lot of the areas where it's difficult to recruit are sectors where there isn't always sick pay available. That's, that's fair to say, uh, and there seems to be a link to that, uh, and also the general paying conditions. And I recognise that many of those businesses would find it difficult to pay enhanced terms and conditions, so we naturally we have to try to work with them on that basis as well. Uh, and we will do that, and we've seen that over the last couple of years. With, through the taxpayers, the government was able to step up and assist businesses uh, with those increased costs during COVID and, and the supports, but also directly linking um, supports to employees because we need businesses to create jobs to be able to fill, the, you know, to have those jobs in the first place. So it's a chicken and egg there, but it's important we get the support structure right. And will all of this be done without the workers themselves having to do any heavy lifting? It'll just come in? It will come in uh, this year. The worker, but to be very clear, this is certified sick leave. Uh, so you will have to be able to have proof that you were that you were sick. I think that's important that we do that because yeah. it's, it's only fair to employers if they're going to pay for this. Right. There is certification involved in that as well. We'll have to get but, a doctor's note, in other words. Correct. Yeah. Yes, and that's to me that's only right. So that's that, that's what the employee will have to do. This legislation kicks in. It is in law. It's, it's a statutory sick pay scheme, um, okay. and it kicks in hopefully with the autumn. It has to finish off its its process through the door, 
Eda Thomas is driving that, hopes to have it in by July, but it, it should certainly be up and running by, by the autumn. Okay. Lastly, your your colleague um, Roderick O'Gorman has come out this morning uh, talking about changes in the law to suit parents five days off to care for a sick child or a sick family member, which again isn't part of this new work-life balance structure. It's going to be costly, but it's something I'm sure you'd support. Yeah, it's again two things. Now, first of all, to be clear, it, it, it's going to cabinet today, so it still has a process ahead of it that, yeah. that everybody can contribute to on consultation and debate and so on. So it's not the complete story yet. Uh, and again, until it goes through cabinet, I'm not liberty to go into all the details of it. Uh, but the short version of this is, and the difference of this, and compared to our previous discussion, this is unpaid leave. But this is about uh, putting in place a structure, a relationship between the employer and the, pl- and the employee to have this conversation, to have a process set out to work out the additional leave a parent would need to look after someone that's, that's temporarily sick or that has long-term see, uh, sickness or illness. See, as well. see, I think, uh, Minister, some people would have shivered at the mention of unpaid because in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, people can't afford to be taken unpaid leave. Yes, well, 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 again, first of all, the number one priority is they very often need to be able to take time off work and not suffer, suffer any consequences in their work because of that need to take time off work and the need to have employers understanding that. That's the first challenge here, and that's the process. Right. And like many other benefits and leaves that come in over the years, they very often come in originally uh, as unpaid, and then we work together with the various sectors over time. It is a need to, to recognise that that needs to be paid. Again, to be clear, there's many employers out there that do make these arrangements without mm. the law, do make payments anyway, and do the right thing if they can. And so it's, again, it's to enhance this conversation for those who, who aren't in that situation as well. Okay. And it's generally positive. But again, it goes back to how work is changing and flexibilities are needed in many of our workforces, as well as additional support for business as well. But if we are to continue to grow our workforce, we now have nearly 2.5 million people that work in this country for the first time ever. And that's to continue. And if we are to fill the jobs, we have to constantly work with new ways to make jobs more flexible, to improve terms and conditions, okay. to improve our businesses. And we do that through some development supports as well, okay. to be able to achieve all of this. Okay, listen, thank you for that, Damien English, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail. So statutory sick pay coming in before the end of the year, three days this year, then working up to 10 days after 2026. And going to Cabinet this morning, this idea of being able to get time off to be with your family at a time of need. And long, a long way to go in that one. 0818969696. There's a bit of a travel warning here. If you're on the road to Limerick or Banog, just beyond Charleville there, a uh, driver got into difficulty. The emergency services are on the scene. Uh, care is required. So that's, if you know Banog Junction or Banog Ground on the way to Limerick between Charleville and Limerick just be careful if you're headed that way this morning 0818 96 96 96 Can we just talk The Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM With the Cork City Marathon Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie The lines are live And we're ready to talk Can we just talk Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Yeah, promise you an Ed Sheeran song. 
before quitting time today. Promise you an Ed Sheeran song. When? I actually haven't quite decided yet, but I promise you an Ed Sheeran song on the opinion line. Your chance to become a finalist, to see him twice here in Cork and then in Paris in July. Promise you the song, just not telling you when. 0818 96 96 96. But for now, we've teamed up with the Cork City Marathon taking place on Sunday, June 5th. That's only about, what, six or six weeks away now? You can run solo, you can do the fuller half marathon, you can join a team or take up the youth challenge. You just need to register at CorkCityMarathon.ie well before Sunday, June 5th. And to encourage you to do that and encourage you to register, we have an end-of-week prize this week of an overnight stay with dinner uh, at the River Lee Hotel. Dinner for two, overnight stay at the River Lee Hotel. We'll give that out Friday, but you need to qualify for us today. So this hour, and we'll do the announcement at the end, so we'll pick our winner or pick our qualifier uh, just before 11 o'clock. We have got a question for you. All right. I got a question about how long something has been running for. This is the way it'll run for the week. Different question every day about how long something has been running for. You need to give me the correct answer uh, to qualify. So text or WhatsApp the answer and your name to 083 396 96 96. I'll pick a qualifier then uh, before 11 o'clock. So, how many weeks at number one did Ed Sheeran's song Shape of You? in 2017. How many weeks did it do at number one back in 2017? Shape of You. Was it A, 13 weeks or B, 5 weeks? Which was it? How many weeks at number one did that song do in 2017? Was it A, 13 weeks, B, 5 weeks? The answer and your name to 083. 396-96-96. Now this new book is being very well received by doctors and anybody who works with teenagers, teenage boys in particular. It's written by Richie Sadler, a former soccer player and indeed soccer pundit on the telly, but also uh, an accredited psychotherapist uh, specialising in adolescent development. The book is called Let's Talk, and Richie Sadler joins me on The Opinion. And Richie, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. As a book aimed at teenage boys in specifically why why did you want to do this so as you said there i work as a psychotherapist and the majority of my clients um, would be adolescents and their parents and majority of those clients would be male um and i spent a few years teaching modules in mental fitness and sexual health in in all boys schools around dublin uh pre-pandemic and i just recognized there was a bit of a a need there or a little bit of a gap and I think most people who listen to this who have any teenagers in their life or who work with teenagers they don't need me to explain this bit but sometimes it's tricky to instigate or initiate conversations with young people about sex sometimes it's difficult as an adult to know what's appropriate to tell a young person how at what age you make yourself available to answer certain questions what's the right point where you step in and give them a little bit of guidance or a little bit of information. And I think 
I don't think this is unique to Ireland, but I think it's it's a feature of Irish life. Is sometimes we just generally struggle and we're kind of a little bit floundering when it comes to discussing mm. the topic of sex. And when it comes to teenage sexuality, we're really, really reluctant to go near it. So I think staying well away from teenagers on this topic or just letting them learn from themselves or learn from their mistakes or learn from watching porn, I, I, I don't think that's going to set them up well for, 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 for long-term positive results. So I figured something like this would just be an additional resource mm. for for any adult who has the well-being of the young person, a young lad in their life, uh, as a priority to just maybe help out. Richie, you and I have something in common. Do you know what it is? <laughs> I'm sure we have many things in common. Go we for were it. both teenage boys once. And exactly. we were difficult little buggers in our time. We locked ourselves away from the world. We were distant by our very nature. We saw our parents as old people who hadn't a clue. And I'm sure they struggled to get through to us, just like you and I struggled to get through. I don't know if you have teenage boys, but you and I struggled to get through to, to our kids. It's a generational thing. Teenagers think that anybody over 25 is only waiting for the undertaker. And that makes it difficult to communicate with them. It does. Like a lot of people, when they try to discuss the world of teenagers today, they're trying to they kind of point out really obvious changes to the to the world and to the landscape of teenagers today. And there's lots of really clear ones we all know about. There's there's mobile phones, there's camera phones, there's online dating apps, there's online porn, there's social media. So there's loads of different elements of the world that they've to navigate that 15-year-old me and you didn't. But exactly like you said, there are certain things that is just just a part of being a teenager. Where you And it's a really... Like we can all look back at our own childhood with, with fond memories or remember the difficulties. But in general, the journey from being a child who's 11 or 12 to being an adult who's in their early mid-20s is tricky. It's turbulent. It's confusing. It's challenging. Um, you're right. Your relationship with your parents at some point for both the parent and the young person can feel like it's a battleground. You're, you're, you're ignoring each other. You're blanking each other. It's one word answers from the young person. You're, you know, you're not hanging out with each other. You're not ringing each other for long chats. It can just feel like there's a bit of a gap there. And I think that's particularly a feature around when people get to 15 or 16. But the key bit of that age group as well is that that's the bit where their sexuality is really starting yeah. to emerge and develop. And they're starting to either have first experiences or they know people who are having experiences in this area or they're certainly curious or excited about the prospect of having experiences. Like that's that's what's meant to happen as part of normal, healthy sexual development. So we've got to help them out. So yeah. just because it feels like a bit of a battleground or just because this topic is awkward to talk about, it still doesn't escape the fact that they're better off knowing certain things and being given reliable information and being kind of challenged as well about how they think and how they're going to behave. Mm. So the communications gap is the one that we need mm. to bridge. And I, I suppose with, 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 with our kids, Richie, you've been a reasonable success as a parent. If you know in your heart that there's nothing your children can't bring to you, or won't bring to you. Nothing. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah, I think a, a lot of parents do have that in mind, where they just would like to see themselves as approachable and seen by their son or daughter as someone who's available for open, non-judgmental conversations. Um, and that's that's a lovely idea. Also, though, if you put yourself back in the mind of 15 or 16-year-old you, like you did five minutes ago, 
you might not want your parent, your father, your mother, or even an uncle or aunt or whoever, you, you might not see somebody in the adult world as as the person you want to approach. Because yeah. like you said a moment ago, they can feel they're just a bit too too old or too close to home or they yeah. might be embarrassed or uncomfortable yeah. or shy about saying the thing that they think they should say. So it, it, all of those things, you kind of just really appreciate where everyone's coming from. And it's not to be judgmental of parents whose son won't speak to them or to be critical of a young person who chooses not to go to mum and dad or to be judgmental in any way about the fact that some people actually find this awkward because no adult in this country had a teenage experience of going to school where this stuff was talked about really normally and naturally and openly and as if this is a normal, healthy part of your development. Like none of us have that background if we were brought up in this country. So there's a really understandable reasons why this whole area is a little bit tricky. It's difficult to know when to step in and how. So it's kind of why I thought something like this might just help. So somebody could sit in their own in a room and read it and reread certain sections and hone in on certain chapters or pages and they don't necessarily have to tell the adult in their life that that's the page that they needed to read, but at least they got to read it. And at some point, in some way, maybe the book might help to open up a conversation in a, in a household that might not have happened otherwise. So do it's we, not a silver bullet. Like yeah. You won't get a book, and I'm not claiming this book is going to do it, which will pre- prevent the people reading it from from still acting like a 15 or 16 year old that says and does things that they will regret in their later life or they won't hurt other people, they won't get their heart broken. This isn't, that's not a realistic aim for a book like this or any other book like this. Yeah. But I think it's better just to talk about this stuff and to broach it as if this is just part of your life. It could go on to be a really meaningful, healthy, amazing part of your life, but let's just talk about it. Yeah. Messing up is, is part of life. Um, of course it is, and and they're going to mess up. I still mess up, but messing up is 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 part of life, and, and that's okay. And we need to let them mess up. So, what do you do, Richie? Do you leave the book in the bedroom and say nothing about it? Do you just leave it in the bedroom or let them around for them to find it and hope that they'll read it for themselves, or do you say, "Come here, I'm after buying this book. Would you be interested in that?" What do you do? Do you know what? There will be some households, like I work with some young people, and the topic of sex is never mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's just never brought up. And if there's a scene on TV, everyone either switches the channel or just pretends it didn't happen and nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. And it's just never discussed. And in a household like that, the young person living there is getting a pretty consistent message over time that sex is just something people shouldn't discuss. Because we never discuss it, so therefore you shouldn't. And I think in a household like that, it might be a bit idealistic of me to turn around and go do you know what sit him down and say listen this is a really normal part of your life I'm sure you've loads of questions I'm sure you're really excited and curious about nudity and sexual imagery and here you go and I'm available for a follow-up chat those, those conversations are unlikely to happen in a household where sex is never discussed but I think like what I did last week I, I've a couple of 15 year old nieces um, a colleague of mine who's a therapist she was the one person I showed the book before I, I, I sent it to the publisher her initial response was, my God, I've, I've loads of teenage girl clients that I'm going to show this book to as well. Mm. Um, it's written for books and it's uh, for boys and with boys in mind. But um, I think an adult reading this or even a girl reading this will, will get an insight into the experience that me and you had like of being a teenage boy. And it'll be empowering for everyone. But the approach, like you asked there, do you, do you hand it to them? Do you just leave it lying around? Whatever works for you. Yeah. Like, there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to this area because we all have our own relationship to 
to sex and relationships and sexuality and intimacy and our bodies. And for lots and lots of understandable reasons, some people will just be reluctant to have open conversations about this. But young people will do better if they will make informed decisions if they have mm. the right information. Some, pa- some parents... Better to help them out. Cheers. Some parents need a bit of a life lesson too, Richie, I would suggest, to the point that they'd like to think... They'd like to think that their 15 and 16-year-olds are different and that they're only interested in football and, and they're only interested in, in their own hobbies. And they've no interest in sex and things like that. They have. They're just not telling you about it. Do you know what? It's, it's, it's a thing that's worth taking a step back. Like The age of consent in this country is 17. So that's the age at which we deem somebody old enough to have enough about them to be able to make a decision on whether having sex is right for them. Like, so do we really expect a 15 and 16 year old to be disengaged from the topic? Do we think like you wouldn't start thinking about it until 17? Like it's really normal. And I'm going to keep using the word healthy. Mm -hmm. It's healthy for a 15 or 16 year old to be excited and curious about sex. It's meant to have happened. The process is meant to be underway at this stage. So if there's no interest whatsoever in it, you'd be curious to see, well, what's going on here? So we, I think, again, in this country, we've widened out to Irish culture here. We can sometimes be very quick to judge people or be concerned about them or make critical or mocking comments about them if they give any kind of impression that they have a positive relationship with sex or they enjoy sex or they want to have sex or they talk openly about sex. Like we, we, we just kind of shut down those conversations, don't we? we? We don't really, we don't know where those conversations are appropriate to have. But in the mind of a 15 or 16 year old, and this applies to girls too, like it, it, it's, it's meant to happen. The process is meant to be underway. Their bodies are preparing for it at the same time. and Exactly. Yeah, as well as their minds. Yeah, you talk a lot about consent and about porn because they're like, first of all, porn was never as, as widespread as it is now. Mm. And consent, consent is a discussion that we're having now or we're trying to teach our youngsters to have. I don't know, did we ever have that conversation with that thought? Like, I don't remember any lengthy or meaningful conversations either at home or in school or with any other adult throughout my entire teenage years about, I don't even think I heard the word consent in relation to sexual behaviour. I, and maybe it's some medical forms over the years, you know, mm. you saw the word consent written and you had to sign something, but it just wasn't a feature of my education when I was a teenager. And I think that it's come into national conversations a lot over the last few years, unfortunately, on the back of really high profile cases where someone is alleged to have done something wrong in this area. So there's alleged victim and alleged bad guy. And then we all have a really heated conversation and everyone's worked up and everyone kind of takes sides and mm. no one kind of really listens to each other. And, and, and it kind of goes nowhere. And I think it's a much better backdrop to have conversations like consent, about consent with young people when people aren't worked up, when there isn't a court case being reported yes. on in the media every day. Yes. And then there isn't a, there isn't a poster boy of somebody who's bad. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I think consent is just, again, it's just about you and your partner communicating with one another that what is happening between you is okay for you both. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's it. And so, that's a conversation. So we're going to remove the provocative, emotive, yeah. legal language. And to 15 and 16-year-olds, they get that. 
But in order to give them that message, you've got to be open to the notion that the sexual behavior is perfectly normal and healthy between partners who are of an age and sound enough to know what they're doing. All right. Listen, we'll leave it there for today, Richie. The book is called Let's Talk, published by Gill, written by Richie Sadler, aimed, as I said, at teenage boys, but teenage girls getting benefit from it also. 0818 96 96 96. I wonder, people listening with teenagers, have you had that discussion yet? Or, or will your kids come to you with those questions? You'd like to think they will, but as Richie said, chances are they probably won't. So, you have to be there for them when they come. 0818 96 96 96. Kate said the pressure on boys with the supply of porn since they all have phones is enormous. It's the closest they get to, inverted commas, training. But they think it has to be like the porn and that makes them do silly, silly things. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Cork's 96FM loves Ed Sheeran and you do too. So we want to send you and a friend to see him twice. Twice. Parky Queeve Cork on April 29th. Then once again in the city of love. Paris. Accommodation, spending money, and tickets to see Ed twice. Live in concert. Listen to Cork's 96 FM for Ed Sheeran songs between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. weekdays. Weekdays. Then text WhatsApp in for your chance to win. Experience Ed Sheeran twice in Cork and Paris. With Blackpool Shopping District. No gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. Two massive stadium shows. Thanks to one radio station. Cork's 96 FM. Are you sick and tired of dieting? Diet, give up, repeat. Diet, cheat, give up, repeat. Maybe you should try something new called intuitive eating, which goes against diet culture. And you eat according to your body's needs. Intuitive eating, Ireland. Uh, Sinead Crow. I've been speaking to Sinead about this whole concept of what is intuitive eating. Sinead, intuitive eating is a new term on me. I know it is gaining in in popularity. It's very much an anti-diet culture form of eating, as it were. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, intuitive eating has been around really for many decades, actually, but I suppose it is coming more... Um, to Ireland, more people are becoming aware of it and more people are talking about it, which is fantastic. But it was developed really by two dietitians in the 90s. And they put together this like self-care, mind-body framework, really to help people to, you know, unplug from all of the diet culture messaging that you mentioned, all of the outside noise, and relearn. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How to uh, listen to their bodies and respond to their own individual needs. Something that we're born with, but we unfortunately lose along the way. And these dietitians put it together because simply they were seeing, like for a long time, clients coming in that they were seeing for weight loss. And they, they were seeing the same clients coming back in the following year, having gained back all the weight that they had lost plus more mm. and facing the same dilemma of, well, how do I lose this weight? So they eventually looked into the research around dieting and I suppose how sustainable it is long term and obviously the negative implications it has, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, financially um, on us. And they put this 10 principle framework together, what we call intuitive eating. It sounds like eat according to your instincts, but it's surely more than that. Well, it draws on instinct, but also rational thought and emotions. So it kind of really mainly draws on those those three components, really. And, um, you know, it's not sometimes people when they hear intuitive eating or there's kind of a lot of misconceptions about intuitive eating. It's just like eat whatever you want, whenever you want, you know, or or they think that it's like the hunger fullness diet, like just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. But I mean, it's quite complex. There's a a full framework involved. And obviously we wouldn't be able to describe it in in major detail, but certainly we can go through what the bones of the, the principles are for sure. I mean, the first principle really to get started, how do we, you know, the first principle is reject the diet mentality. And that really is looking at accepting that, you know, all of this outside noise of, you know, follow this plan and, you know, eat X calories and go on keto and all these different Mm. diets that we see all around us. And really it's saying, you know, do these work long term? And and the reality of it is, is that how how many of us can say how many diets we've ever tried? I know for me, I probably, you know, could have tried 20 plus diets over the years. I spent 20 years trying to reach uh, and be in a smaller body. So if we ask ourselves, if diets were ever effective, we'd only really ever have to do one. So it's kind of saying to ourselves, okay, is it really working for us? Or how are we feeling anytime we go on a diet? You know, there's an initial high, you lose weight initially. Like, I mean, anybody can kind of lose weight short term in, you know, on a a diet, any Mm. diet really that's putting you into a calorie deficit will will result in short term weight loss. But like long term, what does that look like? And most of us, like, you know, a huge percentage of us will regain the weight plus more. And then we're starting all over. Plus we have the additional feeling of just feeling like it's a failure, you know, that mm. we failed and also feeling like, you know, we don't want people to see us. So we become like often kind of quite socially withdrawn. We want to isolate because we're quite ashamed. Mm. So the first principle of intuitive eating is just rejecting the diet mentality. And that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, never want to lose weight or that you you have to forget about this idea of wanting to lose weight. Mm. It just means that you would put it on the on the back burner, that you would put that on the top shelf and say, okay, I'll leave that there for a while. I'm going to try and see, can I figure out what my body needs and what feels good in my body? Is it like, well, if I get it right with my body and I'm at peace with what I'm eating and my body's more importantly at peace with what I'm eating, the weight loss might come anyway. Well, I mean, the truth of it is, is that like three things can happen with your weight with, when you start an intuitive eating journey. You can either stay the same weight, you might gain weight or you might lose weight. And, you know, nobody can tell you uh, what might happen with your body. It's dependent on many, many factors. And the, 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 and the most important point is that it, n- neither of them, 
I suppose, results, if you want to say, are right or wrong. Because some of us are under our set point weight and in order to recover and be free and feel good and be in a good place mentally and emotionally um, and have good body image, it means we need to be at a higher weight. And for some people, they may uh, lose weight because, you know, when we engage in health promoting behaviours, like when we find movement that we enjoy, when we eat foods that feel good in our bodies, when we find other ways to cope with our emotions, that we're not always using food to self-soothe. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, self-soothing with with food. Hmm. But when it's the only tool in your toolbox, you'll probably run into some bother at some point. So, you know, then you 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 very well may um, lose weight, but that that can't be the goal. Hmm. Mm. It may be a consequence, but not a goal. Yes, it certainly may, yeah. The food police. Oh, you shouldn't be having that now. That, that Put away that ice cream. Step away from the fridge. We need to reject that? Yeah, well, that's principle number four, challenge the food police. Um, and that's, of course, that's really key, but it's not even just like people around us. It's it's often the voice in our heads. That's kind of what I meant. Yeah, like, I mean, the, the truth of it is that most of us are actually harsher on ourselves than even the people around us. And that's not to say, of course, we could have family members or friends or, you know, colleagues that make remarks about what we're eating or, or even, unfortunately, our body, because that's still something that happens in society. Um, but it's really, if we can kind of, if we can soften and quieten that the food police uh, are in our own minds, um, we can actually, like when we don't have guilt and shame attached to food, we can actually be- find a, a neutral place and say, well, what do I really want? Hmm. And like, that's something most of us don't even actually ask ourselves. We, we always say like, what should we have? But what do you really want? Yeah. You know, and that's really, really key, which ties into the next principle, which is discovering the satisfaction factor. Yeah. And, the truth of it is, is that if we're eating foods that are really enjoyable, most of us tend to end up picking all day long or we end up kind of, you know, feeling ravenous in the evening. And, and often the time it's because we're so unsatisfied because we forced ourselves to have a low carb lunch right. or no, no carbs for breakfast. And sure, by the time the evening comes, you can't keep your head out of the press because you're still searching for something that makes you feel satisfied. And oh, So that, that kind of explains, I'm always saying this, like, I'm very careful by day, but by night, <laughs> I'm a raging lunatic and I will stick my head into the cupboard and I won't take it out till I'm finished. Well, the thing is, is you're not a raging lunatic. It just, <laughs> that's not what the problem is. The problem is, is you're probably restricting to some degree throughout the day and not giving yourself unconditional permission to have something that truly satisfies you. And if you allow yourself to have the carbs with your soup or whatever it might be, when you feel truly satisfied, it's interesting what happens. Your mind gets to free up for other things for a while instead of thinking, oh, maybe now at three o'clock I might have, you know, a bit of chocolate with a cup of tea because you're yeah. still searching for that sense of being satisfied. It's fascinating. Yeah, there's a kind of a conversation as well that takes place at our dinner table, or particularly when we're out for something to eat and we'll order a dessert and we look at one another and go, buns, pure buns, give us a spoon. You have to be able to do that, don't you? Well, self-punishment, you know, it, it, like how effective is that? It's just simply not. It keeps you in a vicious cycle of self-hatred and self-loathing. And, you know, the reality of it is, is like food is not, it, it's not a moral issue. Food is not good or bad. And and it's, again, it's quite fascinating what happens when we make food all like morally equal. Like, yes, food is not all 
nutritionally equal. Like obviously, um, you know, there's there's various nutrients in different foods. I'm not suggesting all foods across yeah. the board are the same of same nutrient content, but they're morally equal. And it's fascinating what happens when we when we find that place of saying, yeah, like it's not a big deal. Sometimes you won't even want the dessert. Sometimes we only want the dessert in that moment when we're out because we say to ourselves, well, we can't have it again now because we won't be out with our family again for the three weeks. A, a plate of healthy vegetables and a plate of ice cream. Put them in front of us and our minds will make a choice. Our hearts will make one choice. Our minds will make another. Which should we follow? Well, the reason why we, the reason why in that moment we'll probably have a craving or a desire for the ice cream is because we've put that on a pedestal. And we've thought we've it, we, it's somehow forbidden. Yeah. And we've kind of rules around the ice cream that it's a bit bad and we shouldn't really be having it. Whereas we, do, do we, we don't have the same thing around vegetables because we assume that they're good and we don't yeah. think that they, we don't associate them as being something that we shouldn't have. But again, it's trying to find how do we bring the ice cream off the pedestal and bring it down, you know, where it's along with the vegetables. And actually, um, intuitive eaters, and this has been proven in the research, they will opt for the vegetables as often as they would opt for the ice cream. Because it's, you know, some days you'll want the ice cream, but some days you'll want the vegetables. A place for everything and everything in its place. (laughs) There's a principle about feeling your fullness. Now, what's that? Well, of course, like, you know, the, the one of the principles that I didn't mention there is number two, which is honor, honor your hunger. And of course, hunger and fullness is an important part of learning to tap into, you know, do you notice when you're hungry? Do you eat before you hit that kind of ravenous space? Because it's very difficult to um it's the reason why this ties into your fullness is that, you know, we've got to be able to know when we're hungry to eat at a time that we're just kind of, you know, slightly hungry. Because if we wait until you're like you're nearly weak or your head feels a bit dizzy or yeah. there's a really empty sensation in your belly, you'll have this like innate drive just to get as much food into you as possible. Yep. So you likely eat more food in that moment because you're not or in that ex- eating experience because you're not you're not settled. Your system is like, oh, I'm starving. I need food right now. Guilty as charged, Your Honour. I, I, I will hold off for the entire afternoon and then eat table and all at the Chinese restaurant. Well, then maybe it's about maybe it's about putting in a, a small, small snack or a big snack before you go for that Chinese and you might find the experience is a bit different. Yeah. You know, having something before you go, if you reach a point where you're absolutely ravenous, you will find, you barely will taste that food. And actually, is it really enjoyable when you eat in that really fast paced no. kind of mindless space? No, it's not enjoyable. I've been there, done that for years. It's not enjoyable yeah. and it's yeah. not satisfying. And this is why that ties in then to feeling your fullness where, you know, it, it's not it's not pleasant. It's not satisfying to eat to the point where you ne- nearly need to lie down. That's not a satisfying eating experience. Uh, what is satisfying is to get to the point where you have that nice, full, warm, cozy sensation in your belly where you're like, ah, oh, f- I'm full. You're not over full. You don't yeah. need to lie down. You don't feel sleepy. Um, that's actually really satisfying to get to that point. But to be honest, it takes a really long time to get to that point because yeah. usually we've got so many rules in our head and we're like, oh, well, you know, I better finish that now because when am I going to get that again? So you end up eating it anyways, even if you actually are already full. So that's why all of these principles tie in together. It's not like you start off a principle number one and you work your way to 10. You're trying to, you're, you're, you're weaving in and out of all of the principles as you move through the mm. process. Respect the body that you have. Mm-hmm.
you might think it's a bit too big or a bit too small or a bit too lumpy and bumpy, but it's what you got and love it. Exactly. Our body is our container. And, you know, we talked about that actually with Hayes somewhat on the weekend. And that was the one thing that stood out to, you know, stood out to, the, to many of the, of the audiences going, yes, our body is our container. It's going to carry us through this life. And, you know, spending our lifetime trying to make it smaller, make it look different, etc., it's just, you know, how do we find a place where we don't have to, you don't have to love your body. You don't have to look in the mirror and think, wow, I absolutely love what I see. But can you find a place where you respect it, where you appreciate what it does for you? Not about what it looks like, but what it actually allows you to do day in, day out. And when you can find that kind of place of gratitude and all of the rest of it, that appreciation, you know, you kind of come away from beating yourself up as much as maybe diet culture tells you to do. Mm. And that that principle is really key. So if you're eating properly, eating in a balanced way, taking a little bit of exercise, but be happy with what you got. You're doing everything right. And that is what it is. Absolutely. And like bodies come in all shapes and sizes and are all deserving of respect. And, you know, like the reality of it is, is that, you know, if we fight again like that, I just feel like if you ask yourself the question, like how much of your mental space every day is taken up by your body size or a desire to change it or that kind of critical body thoughts. Unfortunately, a lot of people, that percentage would be quite high. I know for me, it was probably up in 80% when I was moving through the dieting years. And like, that's a long time. We have to ask ourselves, how much are we missing out on? Yeah. I read somewhere one time that your body actually knows itself when it's settled. And you need to recognize that point and live with it. Yeah, well, I mean, look, even come back to genetics. I mean, like we don't spend a lifetime trying to say, I wish my shoe size were smaller. I wish I was a bit taller, a smaller. I mean, like there's a huge genetic component to our weight, up to 70% um, is shown in the research. So, you know, when do we find that place where we say, you know, we, we don't have control over our our, our our genes, our DNA. So, you know, to spend a lifetime trying to, change something that's predominantly genetic is, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what's the, how's that going to serve us? Yeah. Sinead, it's fascinating. It's an interesting area. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. That's Sinead Crow of Intuitive Eating Ireland. You'll find them on Instagram with uh, lots of different posts and wisdom and advice for you. If you need help with your eating or any element of your eating or a loved one's Bodywise.ie, B-O-D-Y-W-H-Y-S dot I-E. They have a helpline also in the evenings, Monday, Wednesday and Sunday from 7.30 to 9.30 and Saturday daytime. And they have a Dublin number, 01210-7906. That's 01210-7906 if you need help or just simply ask your GP. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Skies Behind presents Uncorked, the Cork Independent Music Showcase taking place on Tuesday, May 24th at Live at the Everyman. Uncorked is a new music showcase that brings a selection of Cork's new and exciting acts to the stage with this show featuring Rasputin's Boots, Aura Fantoma and more. Access all areas.
Presented by the RTE Concert Orchestra in association with Cork Opera House, the Jazz Legends Show celebrates Charlie Mingus' 100th anniversary and Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. It comes to the Opera House this Friday night with tickets on sale now. Access All Areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us on aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. The Jack Lynch Tunnel, the southbound side of the Jack Lynch Tunnel is blocked due to an overheight vehicle. Uh, something stuck in the tunnel on the southbound bore. Vehicles urged to use the N8 Lord Lanmoy Road as an alternative Listener says he won't be going home tonight. The blockage is so bad. Okay. So the tunnel, one side of the tunnel, is now blocked by an overheight vehicle. Obviously, something gotten stuck in there. So be aware if that's where you're headed. 0818969696. I was telling you earlier this morning about some figures released to the Echo by the Garda Press Office that there have been 628 arrests for public order offences in Cork City since the start of this year. Now, that's quite a number of arrests. Gardaí were saying that some people are arrested obviously more times than once. Some people are arrested many times. But still, 628 arrests for public order offences in the city and the Echo had various reactions from from councillors. Now, I was asking you the question, and it's still out there if you want to, to chime in. Do you feel safe? In the city now. Mag says, I was out in town last week. I had to walk to the bus on my own to get home. I was very nervous, but I needn't have been. There was guards everywhere. Two came towards me as I came out of the Oyster. Four were on the Grand Parade. And a patrol car went past me as well while I was waiting. I know town can be rough at times, but on that occasion, I felt very safe. My honest answer, says this WhatsApp, my honest answer is, a dog isn't safe in the city. Never mind a human. It's a total disgrace. Something has to be done. A few weeks back, I had my eight-year-old son with me walking past a phone box, and there's a man actually going to the toilet inside in the phone box. It was disgusting. I went to town Good Friday, first time in a long time, with my daughter and son. And I'll be honest, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. The place looked so dilapidated and run down. Kids running around the place like they stole from a shop, I won't name the shop, and comparing what they got. I grew up close to town, worked in town all my life until a few years ago, and always loved the buzz, but definitely has lost its vibe and its culture. It just feels a bit rough now. I hate saying it, but I wouldn't be in a rush back in. I wish the council could do something productive and revamp the city, or place people or businesses in those closed-down shops. And then this point, the multiple arrests. Some people arrested more than once. The caller makes a point. It's the same 10 or 20 people responsible for most of the feeling that the city is unsafe. It's a revolving door. And they go around harassing people near banks and people drinking coffee and elderly people and young mums. The kids will be plaguing them to help the poor man. It wouldn't be tolerated, I tell you, in Lisbon. You'd have police lifting them out of it. Question's still open. Do you think Cork City is more dangerous than it was? Do you do you do you go in there now? Do you avoid going in there now? I didn't go in at the weekend. I wasn't in the humour to go into town at the weekend. I had other things to do, like sit lazily in front of a telly for the weekend watching snooker. But that's 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 how I spend my Easter. But 
would you? Do you go, do you think town has gone dangerous compared to what it was? Compared to even to five or ten years ago, has town turned dangerous? New survey from every mum, and it's quite a large survey group. They surveyed 4,400 and something mothers, and they came up with some interesting results and worrying ones saying that anxiety and burnout in new mums is at an all-time high and that motherhood in 47% of those they surveyed has failed to meet their expectations. Kate Gunn of everymom.ie. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me on. Delighted. This is suggesting that a lot of young and new mums are very disillusioned as to how, how it has delivered for itself, as it were. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of points um, that come out of or that jumped out of the survey to us. So uh, we're a parenting community of over 350,000 mums in Ireland um, and we provide expert led content and peer to peer advice um, and a support network really for, for mums in Ireland. Um, and research, this research is really important to us because it gives us first hand information of, um, you know, their experiences, their emotions, their beliefs, their needs um, in Ireland today. You know, how are they feeling? Um, and that research then informs our content, but it mm. also encourages a wider conversation like this um, and to show mums that they're not alone in those experiences and those emotions. Um, and the research report, you know, it was quite startling, the figures that came out to us, but I suppose in the wider scheme of things, unsurprising. Um, as you say, 66% um, are experiencing increased levels of anxiety, um, while 52% are experiencing burnout. So, mm-hmm. you know, those mums are, they're really struggling. Yeah. 54% said they don't have access to support they and that they list very important supports as affordable childcare, flexible working and better postpartum maternity care that's over half the people you surveyed the other one the other one was that uh, it, it said that 47% think that motherhood has failed to meet their expectations what did they mean by that what what did you mean by that um, well, it's, uh, you know, the, there's there's many expectations taken into that, but I think that that lack of support um, really feeds into to that second piece um, of, of content there. Um, but, you know, the, the supports that they need, um, the number one top support was um, childcare, affordable and available childcare. Mm. So 64% said that that support was missing. Uh, and without that, everything becomes a lot more difficult. Um, so, you know, that was the, the number one support, flexible working. A lot of people said that their employers were absolutely great during the, the pandemic and, and, you know, were very flexible and, and helped support them. Uh, we need to keep those supports in place. Um, and those that, that flexible working and the childcare shortage, you know, it's not just moms that are affected. Um, it's parents, mm. it's families, it's communities. Um, it's grandparents, it's, it's, it's every part of society, really, and the employers themselves. Um, so that, that is something that, that, you know, really needs to be fixed in Ireland. Mm. 77% said they felt the work they did is not seen, that they feel unseen. That's, that's a, that big number, mm. too. Yeah, and it's really, it's really sad uh, for us to see that because I think a lot of what mothers take on, you know, it's not just... Um, going out to work and the majority um, of the mums surveyed do work in some capacity, whether full time, part time um, or are self-employed. Um, so the vast majority are working. 
Um, so that's one thing. But then there's also um, all of the, the household work um, that the majority are taking on um, most of that. Um, you know, only mm. 4% of fathers took on the majority of the tasks. I, I was just pandemic, getting to that. So fathers don't come good out of this in terms of their ability to do that. Well, you know, that's uh, it's 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 different for for every uh, household. Um, and I think, you know, we made great progress in that. And you only have to look at the school gate over the, the, the time of the pandemic. And there was so many more fathers um, dropping off their kids, picking them up um, and really enjoying that family time. And that's why that flexible working, you know, it covers not just mothers, but fathers, too. They want to be there. Mm. Uh, they want to help. Um, so we need to, you know, really keep our, our eye on that and, and make sure that we don't go back to, to um, the way it was previously. Um, but a lot of that as well, the, the work um, that she does is not seen. A lot of that is that mental load that mothers tend to take on that, mm-hmm. that isn't seen. So it's all of those, you know, the doctor's appointments, the dentist, the birthday parties, mm-hmm. um, just keeping the ship running that like it's not seen and it's very, it, it's not tactile and it's very hard to show, but it's it's exhausting for mothers to keep on top of all of that all the time. All right. Everymom.ie is the website and people can find out more about the survey and all the other work that you do on that. That's Thank you, Kate Gunn, head of social at everymum.ie. Julie Carton is our qualifier today with the Cork City Marathon. 13 weeks, that song was at number one. And Julie, you go into the draw for the prize, which we'll pick out on Friday, an overnight stay with dinner uh, with for two people at the River Lee Hotel. That's Friday, and Julie, you're through today. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Okay, there is an Ed Sheeran song coming this hour. Right? When? Well, you'll have to hang around and see. Because as soon as you hear it, you got to get onto the text or WhatsApp to 083 396 96 96 and let us know that you heard it. We'll call somebody back and send them through as a qualifier. Because we want to send you and a friend to see Ed Sheeran twice. Parky Creeve on April 29th, then Paris on July 30th. So you're listening for an Ed Sheeran song between now and midday. And then text to WhatsApp for your chance to get in the final draw. With Blackpool Shopping District, no gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best, and it's only on Cork's 96FM. Now, here's the catch. Don't start at it now. Because if you start at it now, we won't even read your message. Wait to hear the song. Only after you hear the song will we take your entry. Only when the song is playing. But it will play Mm, maybe half an hour that way. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now, for two years or more years, more more of the pandemic, weddings were on again and off again and on again and off again and on again and off again. And the ones that were able to go ahead were really tiny, and you couldn't do a whole lot with them. Now, anyone in the wedding business will tell you they are booked up the wazoo 
for the foreseeable because weddings are back and they're big and they're bright and they are just back to their former glory again. So we thought we'd catch up with Sandra Looney of To Have and To Hold on what the big trends are for weddings now. And it, it, it does seem to be, before I do that, uh, Sandra, it does seem to be the thing that suppliers are just booked solid now for 2022. Good morning. And we're on our knees thanking God that we are. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's it's really great. After the misery of the last few years where we were really impacted, um, we're all thrilled. Yeah, we, we have a backlog that we're getting through. And then thankfully, there's a lot of really new, uh, nice weddings happening as well. So yeah, things are looking good for um, for the foreseeable. Which is good because it was it was a rubbish couple of years for you guys. What 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 are the trends then heading into 2022? Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a hard one to call because of the fact that we're coming out of. Um, weddings being so small, uh, there is still a trend, I suppose, for smaller weddings. I think people like them, people that were at them liked them. Um, so there is, I suppose, a nod to that in that um, smaller weddings of about 50 people, 60 people are quite kind of acceptable now. So that's one thing. But the big wedding is definitely back um, and um, with all the bells and whistles, musicians and all the fun things mm-hmm. that you would expect. Um, some of the bigger trends that we're seeing are, um, I suppose, having your wedding all in one place. So yeah. I suppose that's a move away a little bit from the traditional church wedding. It's not for everybody anymore. Mm. Um, so what we're finding as a couple is is the venue is really, really important in this instance because what they want is they want a venue that can provide them a place to have the ceremony, um, to have your drinks reception, do all of your photographs so you don't have to get in the car and drive out to Blarney or drive to Black Rock or wherever, mm. and then have your main party afterwards and your dinner. So that's a big trend where seeing is getting everybody to one place and then just staying there for the day. I was actually so at one such wedding thing. during uh, the, the pandemic when we could do things again for a little while and like that now everything was in the one place and it, it kind of was great as a guest. Mm. You know, you weren't traipsing Absolutely. around looking yeah. for, where's the next bit like, do you know? Yeah, and the other thing, you know yourself with a good Irish wedding, sometimes you lose half your guests between the church and the hotel. They're gone to the local. <laughs> so You might very well think that I couldn't possibly comment, yeah. <laughs> no, I know we've never done that. We so had to search the pubs on our wedding day. So, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a search party sent out to say, would you get them here? We need to get the bell rung. So yeah. um, I think there's a little element of that that too, but that's it, it's definitely a trend we're seeing. Um, one of the other things we're seeing is around decor because obviously we do um we do flowers and we do decor as well as the mm. planning and it's become way more paired back um so people are putting a lot of focus on the ceremony particularly if it's not in a church um and also then on the table so mm. things like flowers on the table maybe different linens to what the hotel offers different napkins mm. that's the kind of area that people are focusing on um, and it's very, um, it's very much a paired back, elegant, 
much more simple type of a look mm. than we would have seen pre-pandemic. Is that tablescaping? Is that the word I'm looking for? That's the word. Look at you. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Tablescaping. That's it. Um, so, yeah, tablescaping it came from America, um, where most of the trends come from. So most of the wedding trends come from either Asia or America. And we probably get them a year or two afterwards. So, yeah, tablescaping is huge. It's all about making sure that the table is the same piece of the room. Mm. Uh, previously, people would have spent, you know, a lot of money and loads of other props around the place. But mm. really, I suppose the focus is back on the mm. table. You're going to spend your guests and you're going to spend most of the day and the evening at the table. Yeah, So it need, uh, making a centrepiece out of it, it makes absolute sense. It does, yeah. And what we try to do as well is when we're looking at uh, doing a decor plan for your ceremony, we are also looking at how can we use all of the decor in the ceremony in the reception area. So we move it. So we do what we call a, a transfer. So we, if we're using florals, if we're using um, props in your ceremony area, then we always have a second plan that we uh, agree with you beforehand uh, to move them. And then you can use them on the table. You can use them in the drinks reception. So mm. it's really about getting good value for money as well when you do invest. When people go to a venue and it's a venue that's got a different wedding every weekend of every two or three times a week, they want to say, all right, I want this venue for my wedding. So it needs to be unique to us. And there's so many different ways of doing that now as well. There really is. And that's the thing. You know, the hotels are really good at what they do and they have a process in place, um, but they offer a certain package. And then anything above or beyond that is where we come in. So that's exactly it. What the couples want to do is they want to put their own personality onto the place. You know, they want to bring in little things that are a nod to to them, uh, to their families, to how they met. Um, so very much, um, as I say, because the ceremonies are now happening in the hotels, um, there's a real push now to make sure that the ceremony area looks as nice as a church would, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, so that all the aunties and grannies and whoever aren't, you know, kind of horrified at the fact that um, the, the wedding is taking place in a room and not in um, in a church. So there is a real focus on making sure that the ceremony is really, really beautiful. Um, and then, as I say, they're putting their own stamp on the hotel. Mm. And that could be down to stationery, signage, the types of florals they use. Um, and really, it's all about making sure that whatever you do reflects you as a couple and isn't something totally off the wall. What about what people are, are wearing? Are the days of the big meringue gone? Um, <laughs> Kelly Harrington, <laughs> look yeah. at the, the yeah. pictures of Kelly and Mandy's wedding. Very, very different. Very, very different. She had kind of a pair of trousers on under the de under the dress, and it looked like something she could wear out to the pub. You know, it was really it was it was dressy for the day, but it was also something that A you'd wear again, and B looked extremely relaxing. Kind of none of this dragging yeah. a big cage around with you and all that nonsense. Is that gone? It is to a large degree. The day of the meringue is gone. I even remember the meringue for my Debs back in the. I was going to say 80s, but I won't say it out loud. The, the meringue days are gone. There's a big, big uh, shift towards comfort and elegance. Um, so, yeah, Kelly's outfit was amazing. The the trouser suit with the beautiful overlay. Um, we're seeing that um, not, a, not wholesale because it takes a brave person to kind of do that. Um, we've seen it ourselves. We did a wedding a few years ago, a lovely lady, and she wore something similar. We're seeing it more in the bridesmaids, the bridesmaids 
also wearing more um, relaxed kind of trousers, maybe like that. But certainly the wedding dresses are still very, very elegant, um, but they're far more, um, they're far less puffy, Mm. um, if you like. So what we're seeing is an elegance, a simplicity, very much kind of Hollywood glamour. Mm. Um, And the same with the, the bridesmaids. One of the things we're seeing with the bridesmaids is it's not necessarily all the same dress or it's not necessarily all the same mm. colour. So are the days of having to be stitched into it gone, are they? Yeah, absolutely. And everybody wearing the same dress, irrespective of whether you're six foot or five foot nothing. Um, so, yeah, really, I suppose what couples are doing now, and particularly the bride, is working with the um, with the bridesmaids to find something that suits their body shape, that mm. suits their style, that's going to suit the venue that they're going to. Because if you have a very relaxed venue, you want it to be a relaxed vibe. Mm. Um, and so really, the venue dictates an awful lot about what way the wedding is going to look and the direction it goes in. You mentioned everything under the one roof which is a great idea. But something else that I've seen happening is two-day. Now, they're a smaller wedding, but it happens over two days and everyone's kind of half expected to spend the night. That's expensive for people. It is very expensive, and that was very much a trend before a pandemic. What's actually dictating that this time, PJ, is the fact that there is very little availability for the second day in a hotel. So if they're having a second day, they may be taking it back to the local pub or or to a restaurant or maybe even a marquee back in the house. And because what happened is that all of the weddings, if you recall, from 20 and 21 had to be moved. Um, And then there were a whole load of new weddings as well. So what the hotels are seeing is limited availability now to be able to host any more weddings so therefore the staying in the hotel and having a big day too is somewhat impacted by lack of availability Mm. so you're booked out for 2022 and booking into 2023 that's great to know it is. It's great. It's fabulous. Um, we're really, really lucky. Um, we work with lots of the great venues in the city and all the great suppliers who, you know, you know many of them as well. It's mm-hmm. been a torrid time. Mm. And uh, we were really on our knees there for a very long time. I myself, I was closed for over 14 months, almost 15 months. So, mm. you know, it was a very difficult time. But look, we're all safe. We're all well. Yeah. Uh, we all came out fighting fit. Yeah. And um, we're really just ready to rock and roll now and for the and next and couple and of years. It's great to see so many people back. The bands and the DJs would be who I'd be in most contact with. It's just great to see them back yeah. and busy and heavily booked again. Yeah. Sandra, thank you very much. Sandra Looney of To Have and To Hold. Wedding trends of 2022. It's a very different thing now. But thank God the meringues are gone. I don't know. I, I don't know how a woman ever wore those things. I don't like. The dress was wider than the door and there was a cage inside of it. There's a sense to me. <laughs> 0818 96 96 96. Do you ever think of being a foster carer? Could you do that? Could you be a foster carer? Do you even know how to get started? Do you know what it entails? Would you like to be a foster care? We're going to focus on that today and tomorrow, starting in just a minute. PJ, Eugene says, through the tunnel is flattening out a bit because of the extra weight pressing down on it when the ships pass over it. Is This is why so many trucks are getting stuck. Eugene, stop, will you? Now, on the state of town, I was in there two weeks ago on a Sunday, first time this year, I found it dirty. There were blood spatters on the footpath from Merchant's Key all the way down to the game shop. A lot of people also drinking in the street. Yes, yes. That blood, yeah. On Blarney Street and the accident and the crash, we put that up on um, 
on Twitter the picture of the car overturned on Blarney Street talking earlier on to Kira about it needs to be one way. Councillor Mick Nugent was on to say, I put to the council management they should trial Blarney Street on a one way system as agreed with the community association in response the council management have written to the NTA seeking funding to survey traffic solutions for Blarney and the Strath. They love their surveys, don't they? And they love spending our money on surveys. If the locals wanted to be one way, the locals wanted to be one way. So you go off to Dublin, to the National Transport Authority, and you give them a load of money to get a survey done to see, can we do what the locals want? We're spending taxpayers' money on all this nonsense. And when will you hear back about that? When will you hear back? God knows when. We heard it last week from up in Nocturnee. There's no sign. Two or three years on since they started asking for changes in traffic management up there. There's nothing happening except that maybe we'll give some money to a consultancy firm to do some drawings for us. Drawings we should be able to do ourselves. And yes, I am ranting and raving, I guess, but it's annoying. 0818 96 96 96. Have you ever thought about being a foster carer? Listen up. Can we just talk? Opinion line on Corks 96 FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Oldies and Irish on Corks 96 FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Hidden Hearing, tuning you in so you don't miss a thing. And we've been doing it for over 30 years. Hiddenhearing.ie. Corks 96 FM. Have you ever considered being a foster carer? Like, could you give a home to a child in the care system? Well, Tusla, the Child and Family Agency, is asking people to consider that. It's a big commitment, huge commitment. But these are children who can't, for some reason, live in their own home just now, and they need a place to live, be it short or long term. Now, Tusla has a dedicated fostering department. It is known as the Fostering Resource Unit. And the principal social worker at that unit, she heads it up, is Suzanne Pelican Kelly. Suzanne, I'll begin with something that we frequently hear, and I'm not sure if it's hearsay or what it is. Maybe you can put me straight on it. Is there an ongoing shortage of foster carers? PJ, thanks very much for having us on today. Absolutely. That is not a misconception. There absolutely is a shortage of foster carers within Tusla and within the state. And just very briefly, um, Cork is the largest foster care um, department in the country, but that doesn't mean we have a plethora of foster cares and we are urgently looking for foster cares. Do you know the reasons for the shortage? Well, I think you have to look at the fact that fostering is actually a voluntary service, so it's not something that you you can make anyone do. And whilst uh, during the pandemic we struggled to get cares, we actively recruited throughout the pandemic. And I think it's really around people's circumstances. Um, Not everybody um, has the time in their life or a room in their home as we have in our our tagline to foster. But we're really hoping um, that now people might consider fostering as an option um, for looking after a child that requires care. 
So, Suzanne, who can be a foster carer? Or I guess maybe who can't, because, again, there's a perception that it's difficult, like for a single person or a same-sex couple or somebody with a disability to, to become a foster carer. Is that the case? Actually, no. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of uh, bust some of the myths as, as because they are out there. Um, TUSLA are very inclusive in relation to who can foster so um, single, sec, uh, single people can foster. People who are working full-time can foster. Single-sex uh, single sex couples can foster. Um, older people can foster. So um, they, those, through the um, whole range of types of fostering options, helps meet the need of children who require care outside the home. Yeah. What about someone who, who can't have children? Is it true, somebody said this to me in an interview years ago, yeah. is it true that you have to stop IVF if you want to foster? Now, what we would say, yes. And I'll tell you where that comes in, PJ, relates to um, someone who is either going through the adoption process, is pregnant, or is going through IVF, cannot be considered for fostering at that time. Mm. And the reason for that is, is that if we look at carers who have children that are three years of age or older can apply to foster. And that's to ensure that the child, you know, that either the, you know, the baby they're going to have is going to get all the care and attention that it needs its first three years of life. I see. So what we do is when we have an information session, we talk about that and we say, if you really are interested in fostering and you are either, you know, going through an adoption process or you're going through IVF or you're pregnant and you're still interested after that child is three years of age, please, all by means, do come back to us. Okay. That, that explains that one very well. So for somebody then who is eligible, what's the process? Where do they start? Okay, where they start is an information night, and that is the very first uh, beginning of the process. We have an information night next Wednesday evening on Microsoft Teams. Uh, people aren't to be afraid of that because we have a really good uh, technical social worker in the department to help them get on. That's at 7 p.m. on the 20th of April. And then we have, most importantly, um, our uh, 18th of May recruitment night for people who are interested in looking after a child with a disability. Mm -hmm. So we're recruiting all the time um, in relation to looking for new carers. Mm. I'll come back to the information nights and particularly the disability in a little while. How long does the, does the process take? The process can take anywhere from um, six months to a bit longer. And the reason for that is the longest stage of the process is the reference gathering. So we gather a lot of references um, on individuals, let's say from schools, public health nurse, doctors, uh, their employer. And the reason why we do that is we need to ensure that somebody who's willing or wanting to foster is best suited to foster. So that's usually the largest part, longest part of the process. Mm. But from there then, they attend a training, a preparation and training course, and that's usually over a three to four week period. It's usually only a few hours in the morning. We're currently doing that on Microsoft Teams. And then the last part of the process is the assessment process. And that can take anywhere from 12 to 16 weeks. And following on from that, then they would go to one of our committees to be approved. I see. I see. So once one is approved, then how are children matched with their foster carer? Like, can a carer 
express a preference as to the age or gender of the child they'd like to foster? Is, is that taken into account? Of course it is. It's a really all-inclusive process. During the assessment process, the assessing social worker has to look at the foster carer and they have to look at what is their family makeup or what experience do they have looking after uh, children in care or children in their own family, even if they're a childless couple, if they've had nieces and nephews or friends that they've looked after. So what we try to do is during the assessment process, we look at what would best suit that family and recommendations are made at the time of assessment um, and that goes to committee. So some people might be assessed for a long-term child and it might be from zero to 18. Other, other foster carers who go to committee and are approved maybe for only weekends and it may be for a child under six. We really look uh, with the person who's interested in fostering, what really is going to suit them? And I think that's the important bit because not every child is going to suit every family. Yeah. And I guess, let's be fair about it, one would know that children in the foster care system, many of them would unfortunately be be troubled and maybe difficult. It takes an amount of experience to be able to take in a child like that. I would agree with you in some ways, but what I would say is the foster cares that we have, they have a lot of life experience. Mm along with the training that they are getting in Cork. So we have, we use a trauma lens and I don't like using jargon, but children who come into care suffer trauma. And what we have found over the last number of years under a piece of research with UCC is that we need to equip our foster carers regarding how to manage trauma when a child comes comes into their home. And it's a really, really good training program. So we're trying to get all our foster carers right now trained in that uh, program because what we do know and what we've learned is that foster carers, they themselves can help that child overcome the trauma that they have endured prior to coming into care. Yeah, it, it is, no doubt, Suzanne, it is very skilled work. And, and th- those of us outside of the system know very little about it. Like. Another area that it might be difficult to to place a child was if the child is is sick or has a disability. That's a specialised form of fostering too. It really is. And PJ, I'm really glad you raised that because that is a huge area of interest and concern that we have at the moment here in Cork is the fact that we have a number of children who do require a foster home, who have a range of disabilities, whether it is a medical condition or physical disability, or intellectual disability, or mental health issue. And we need people who are interested in that area that would foster a child who needed care outside their family home. And those cares would be supported by not only um, TUSA, but we have very good working relationship with the HSC and their partners, such as Brothers Charity, uh, Enable Ireland, uh, Cope Foundation. And we work together um, in order to support those children with those particular types of needs. Yeah, like after a child is placed, not just a child who might have a disability or be sick, but mm-hmm. yes. in general after a child is placed, like they'll have their own social worker being in the care system. We'd understand that. But to, so to speak, Sudan, who takes care of the carer? Yeah, excellent question. Um, and that comes up frequently um, at our information nights. and. What I kind of always say at an information night is that if you don't like social workers now, you might not like us at the end of the process because there's a lot of us involved. (laughs) But 
foster cares have um, a, an assessing social worker, so they've all, they're always guided by somebody, and that's a social worker. And then once they're approved, they have what's known as a link worker. Again, not to use jargon, mm. but that's a social worker to support them. And that's for them alone in relation to helping them with whatever training needs they need, to help them uh, work with the area social worker or any services or any issues that arise, a link worker is assigned to them from the Fostering Resource Unit in Cork. And how accessible to them is that link worker? As accessible as it needs to be. So like if a foster carer needs, you know, frequent contact in the sense of on on a weekly basis and they're their social worker is not on annual leave or is around, they absolutely will get that service. But also to just to say to you, we have other disciplines within our own team. So if the link worker um, believes that, uh, you know, more support is required outside what they can offer, we have a social care leader within our department to all also offer that direct work with that link worker or like with that foster care to support them. It's a lot to take on uh, for anybody. So you mentioned information evenings earlier on. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got one coming up later this month and then two in May. We have one in May and the one in May is very uh, specific. It's for um, people who are interested in looking after a child with a disability. And that is the 18th of May at 7 p.m. And that's on Microsoft Teams. Um, and then we have another general information in July. We run them every month bar June and August mm. are, and December are the three months we don't run. We found that the interest wanes during those times. Um, but the one this month is a general. So anybody's interested in fostering in general, uh, we would welcome everybody coming. And the one in May is very specific for those who are interested in attending who are interested in looking after a child with a disability. And you said that you have IT people who will help with the Microsoft Teams and all that, but what's Mm -hmm. the first step? Where would one go to sign up for that? First step is that they can register their interest at tusla.fostering.ie is there, uh, is the first. The and the other is, I'm sorry, now I'm just trying to get the the, the other number. Um, my apologies, no. Um, they can register their interest at tusla.fostering at tusla.ie. And the free phone number is 1-800-226-771. You mentioned, Suzanne, earlier, just to fa- finish up, you mentioned that it's a voluntary service in that you can't force anybody to do it, obviously. But a carer is paid, aren't they? Uh, how much is that? And, and and is it true, again, these are other things you hear, is it true the child gets a medical card for the duration of the placement? Yes, in relation to the medical card, absolutely that's true. Every child who comes into care is allowed to have a medical card. So that comes with the child. Um, and if the child doesn't have one at the time of coming into care, that is applied for by the area social worker straight away. Um, and just in relation to the allowance, so every foster care is paid an allowance for every child that comes into their care. And the allowance um, for under 12s is 312 euros. And for over to over 12 years of age, it's 352, and that is per week. Okay. So, and that's for, that's for the day-to-day looking after that child that you have in your care. Suzanne, I hope that our conversation will 
bust a few myths, as you said yourself at the start, and maybe interest some people out there who, who might want to get involved. It's, a, it's an extremely noble thing to do. It's a very noble thing to do. And what I always say to people who come on, um, you know, I suppose I've been doing the information ice for the last four years since I've come to fostering. And what I have said to people, it is an extremely brave thing to do as well. So not only is it noble, but it's very brave. And we we value our foster cares in Cork. And we believe anybody joining us um, would have a great experience. It's a very good experience. And it's not just the adults who foster PJ. It's also their children. Yeah. And we have loads of support for them as well. Yeah. That need to be sibling support, I guess, if you're bringing another child into a house with us already. And you do that too. Yes, we do. We have support groups for birth children and we have support groups for foster cares. Suzanne, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, PJ. Thank you. Now, tomorrow, we'll be following up that conversation with Suzanne Pelican-Kelly by talking to Marion, who's an experienced foster carer and is encouraging people to give it a go. And uh, CB, I will find out the answer to that question of yours. I'm working on it at the moment. Uh, we'll come back to us. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Experience Ed Sheeran twice in Cork and Paris. With Blackpool Shopping District. No gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. Alan, how are we doing? All right, we played the song. What song do we play? Dragon. We played the song. Oh, okay. Um, playing there again, Fiona. Alan and Joker got through, right? We played the song called Don't, and he qualifies to go forward to the draw. There'll be another one during the day. Getting a chance to send you to see Ed Sheeran, not once, but twice. Parky Cueve on April. I think Alan's overcome with excitement at the prospect of seeing Ed on April 29th at Parky Cueve and then in Paris on July 30th. You're listening for another Ed Sheeran hit. There'll be one later this afternoon with Simon. Every time you hear the Ed Sheeran hit, you text or WhatsApp for your chance to get in the draw. A draw to experience Ed Sheeran twice in Cork and in Paris. It's for Blackpool Shopping District. No gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. And Alan, his phone has gone dead. With the sheer excitement of going through to our draw. And Simon will have another qualified Saturday. You're listing out for an Ed Sheeran song. And every time you hear one between 7am and 7pm is your chance to win that fantastic double up. See Ed Sheeran twice with Cork's 96FM. 0818-969696. Look at Tuesday. We're back after a long weekend. People get overexcited when they're on the phone. <laughs> Robbie O'Driscoll, good morning to you. Hello, PJ. Robbie, talk to me about Cafe Move. What is it and what do you do? Well, the name Cafe Move came from a centre I put together pre-pandemic, which was effectively a cafe in the centre of an industrial unit. And I had a dance floor, a gymnasium, and upstairs an open matted area where people would come, take part in personal training, enjoy each other's company, I suppose, and all in all, take care of the bodies, but also... Central to the theme of Cafe Move was um, social interaction, hence the cafe dead centre. Mm-hmm. No, I say before the pandemic because 
um, I suppose, Cafe Move served to create um, a reduction in what we now call social distancing. And it couldn't survive in a, in a time where people had yeah. to stay apart. So unfortunately, I had to close Cafe Move and continue my practice um, in a clinical fashion that I now run in Douglas and in the city centre. So what is it that you do, Robbie? So I suppose it's best to understand me as a physical therapist at the moment, where I work with people, I suppose, to keep their bodies able. Now, it could be hands-on treatment and something like um, massage therapy, I suppose, is the easiest way to think about it, as well as I come from a background in personal training and corrective exercise, so I use exercise as a means to keep people able. But I think what might be a little bit different is that central to my practice is this concept of how I utilize play. Okay. For adults and all. No. <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone says. A hundred percent for adults. In fact, all of my clients are adults. Um, in Cafe Move, I, in fact, and I still do, run what I call play, play shops. So they're workshops, but they're a bit more, is play central to the theme of the practice. So I suppose... My belief is that we could do well by keeping our bodies able to play and to stay playing. And the science seems to be backing up the idea. Okay, so forget about that play is for kids. Absolutely, forget about that idea. So play can sometimes be mistaken for silliness or perhaps just a a waste of time is often what it's considered, when in fact it couldn't be more valuable. In fact, from a biological perspective, play is in line with our need to sleep drink and eat. Okay. It's what's called homeostatically regulated. So it means for something to be homeostatically regulated, it means that a pressure in our body builds up and an emotion makes us to follow or to seek. So for example, you're hungry. That's the feeling. You go find food, you eat it, you feel satiated and you relax. So that would be an idea of a homeostatic pressure. The same for sleep. You feel a sleep pressure in the evening. Yeah. You seek your bed, you put your head down and you relax. So again, your, your body finding balance but what's interesting, and this is a pretty new um, discovery, is that play, the play centers in our brain are homeostatically regulated. So we do feel an impulse and an urge to play. Now, when we do engage in playful activities, there is a release of tension and a relaxation to follow. Mm. Play and leisure and exercise, they're not all the same thing as what I think I'm hearing. They're not, but... I actually like to integrate them such that it is the case so that exercise can have this uh, obligatory style and sensation to it, I suppose. How I'm trying to explain myself is that people can feel like they're obligated to exercise, like another thing to check off the list of things to do of a day. Mm -hmm. Whereas there could be just as much value, if not more, to engage in a physical practice, whatever it may be, but they have a more playful nature, for example, I don't know if you've ever been out the lock, but if you see plenty of people running and they don't look like they're having a fantastic time running, they look like they're running from a place of obligation. I ought to run because X. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were to ever see someone running in a game of chasing, there's this look of joy across their face and their gait cycle, how they run is a completely different thing. Point. Yeah, it's all these people, I see them in the morning when I'm driving in, they've got this grimace on their face, like this is absolutely killing me, but I know it's good for me. They've got that look in their yeah, face. Yeah, because... It, that's it. And, it. and there is truth to the sense that it is good for them. But I also think that to do the same activities and adopting a playful attitude and consider perhaps something of an experimental nature or there, I'm, I'm going to enjoy the fresh air of it all or whatever you want to attach to it makes it something a bit more playful. 
the body responds in kind, mm. and so does the brain, in fact. So if I were to get a small nerdy, which I again, PJ, there's yeah. this thing called neuroplasticity. Yeah, I've and heard all about it. I'm Have a big really? fan of neuroplasticity, yes. <laughs> so yeah, you might know so that um, a neuroplastic brain is a brain that continually rewires itself mm-hmm. and ages well and expands its capacity to think and broaden its abilities to think. Well, this is a direct product of engaging in play. So that would be engaging in a physical riddle. So for example, you come across a puzzle and you engage with the puzzle physically and you solve it. Then you create a neuroplastic environment for, for the brain, which rewires itself. And all in all, you get that bit smarter. And there's a good chance that you move a bit further away from any type of degenerative disease, like mm. dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. A body can continue to learn. It doesn't matter what age you are. The brain can continue to learn and expand because we only ever use tiny portions of its vast capacity anyway. So the more you try to put into it, the better it is long term. Exactly. And it seems to be almost like a cheat code in that we can gain those benefits from playing, from this interacting with the world that doesn't have an element of seriousness to it. It has actually the opposite. It's called... And non-seriousness. Now, again, just to go back to pre-qualify what play is, because your listeners might be like, what on earth are we talking about here? And play ultimately is this idea of experimentation or creation. So you having fun on your show, for example, there could be a play quality to it. An actor rocking up to a theatre to take on a role, that's play. Or somebody who enjoys photography as an amateur, remembering that the term amateur comes from the word a more, meaning lover of, they're doing it because of the love of it. Right. So anything that somebody is doing in an amateur level, they're doing it for the love of it, and it has that play quality to it. So play can carry across to all realms, in, in the arts, in the sciences, and in recreation. Like a person learning to surf, for example, which is me. Man, I'm doing really badly at the moment. But there's a play quality to it, because I'm not taking myself seriously. And because of it, I'm getting what you call like exercise. I'm getting that leisure out of it. And all in all, I'm going to probably increase the likelihood of myself aging well. And I can continue this practice, and so can okay. your listeners, for example. If, okay. Does that make sense? Do you know what? It, it sounds like an awful lot of fun, which I guess is what it's supposed to sound like. So <laughs> where, where, I mean, you say exactly. keeping, keeping the body able, all right? And my listeners yeah. know that, that I, for example, I, I struggle a bit with, with an arthritic neck from years of not using it properly, I guess. Like... You can okay. help me to exercise in a way that protects me, and yet I still get the benefit from it. I could even do you one better, PJ. I could help you like directly, get to understand where you're coming from, and then I could offer you some principles, the parameters to which you can explore your own body and movement, knowing what is like a safe area to stay within, so that you increase the likelihood of um, resolving your neck issue yourself, and then furthering your ability then to go out in the world and explore the world with your body in movement. Within, within because itself. perhaps that neck injury can be like, um, it can be, for lack of a better term, a handicap to where you're like going, oh, I'd rather not do it. Should I risk hurting my neck? There you go. But as an injury resolves, a person's confidence raises and their likelihood of engaging with the world yeah. goes up that bit higher. Mm-hmm. And then this is what I mean by engaging with the world, or playing with the world. Like, okay. I mean, 
nobody's getting out alive you know, we want to have as much fun as we can like. <laughs> I like that and I'll leave it there Robbie O'Driscoll uh, Cafe Move Cork you'll find out more about Robbie I like that and he's based in Douglas um, play workshop for grown people who should be old enough to know better but are not thank you Robbie 0818 96 96 96 there were some fantastic photographs going around at the weekend of a leukistic humpback whale and a, and a, a 90 and a bino most beautiful photographs Lisa Steiner uh, from Whale Watch Lisa good morning hello good morning good now I think you're waiting on something to happen and you're out at sea <laughs> at the moment so this magnificent creature what is it it's a, a humpback whale that's pretty much 95% white which is very very unusual as far as we know there's only one of these in the North Atlantic. Wow. And it's got a calf with it, does it? No, no. This is a, we estimated um, because of previous sightings in Norway in 2004, um, Svalbard in 2012, um, Guadeloupe in 2015, uh, 18, uh, 19 and 20, and uh, Norway again in 2018, that it's probably at least... 25 years old. Right. Okay. And how old do they live to be? Normally they would live to be 50, 70 years, between 50 and 70 years old. Right. But a white one generally doesn't live that long because they're very visible to anything that might be preying on them. Gotcha. Gotcha. But a magnificent creature. The pictures are the pictures are stunning. And it's, I mean, have you ever seen one before? You're a whale watcher. Have you ever seen one before? <laughs> No, I've been uh, watching whales off the Azores for over 30 years and I've never seen anything so beautiful. And did it, like, do they give any idea that they're there? Do they just, do people just see them and call you or what's the story? Like, you know, are they tracked is what I'm trying to ask. Is, is there a tracker on well, it? Well, in, no, there's no tracker on this one. Um, they do, um, in certain places, put trackers on them. Here in the Azores we have a wonderful system of lookouts using the old whale uh, whaling huts for mm. spotting the animals. So our lookout in the, in the north, uh, Jose Martins, he spotted it and uh, we were lucky enough that it was still around when we got there. Very good. Alright, listen, leave it to it because I know you're watching for something to happen. It might be about to, to surface. Lisa, thank you. That's Lisa Steiner in the Azores. Whale Watch Azores where this wonderful leukistic humpback whale. It's a beautiful, it's almost snow white has torn up. Such a rarity. Thanks for that. Lisa, quick reminder to you that the Premier League Live is back this Saturday at 96am.ie with Trevor and the team, powered by TalkSport. Live coverage of Arsenal versus Man U at 12.30, Norwich City versus Newcastle at 3, and Brentford against Spurs at half past 5. Premier League Live online with now. Stream live Premier League action with the Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. And listen Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or go to 96FM.ie. And I think that's it. I think we're done. Yeah, we're overtime. See you tomorrow just after 9. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast or on 96FM.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.